The court. The court. Please be seated. The case of um, Attorney General of Canada against Joseph Power for the appellant Attorney General of Canada, Charlene Tellis Langdon and Sarah Drudge. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, uh, Ravi Amarnat and Zachary Green. For l'intervenant, the Procureur General du Québec, Maître François Hainaut. For the intervener, Attorney General of Nova Scotia, Samantha Paris, Edward A. Gorris, KC. For the intervener, Attorney General of New Brunswick, Rose Campbell, and Isabelle Lavoie-Daigle, KC. For the intervener, Attorney General of Manitoba, Charles Murray, and Julie Winter. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Nicholas Isaac, Emily Lapper, and Stephen Davis. For the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Theodore J.C. Litovsky. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, David Kamal. For the intervener, Speaker of the House of Commons, Alisa Tompkins, John J. Wilson. For the intervener, Speaker of the Senate, Marc-André Roy, Anne Burgess, and Maxime Fay. For the respondent, Joseph Power, Louis-Alexandre Hébert, et Gosling, I'm sorry, et uh, Lex Gill. For interveners, Fisher River Cree Nation et al., Mohsen Sadig, Adil Abdullah, and Alissa Troutier. For the intervener, Quebec Native Woman Inc., David Chalsey, and Sarah Andrade. For the intervener, David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, Neil Abraham, and Megan Stephens. For the interveners, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Andrew Locken, and Mariam Mokhtar. For the intervener, Canadian Constitution, Constitution Foundation, George Avram, Jennifer Bernardo, and Rono Cam. For the intervener, John Auer Society of Canada, Connor Biltfell, and Simon Boutillier. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Brody Noga, Emily McKinnon, and Emily Wang. Ms. Tellis Langdon. Yes, uh, good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, I appear on behalf of the Attorney General of Canada with my colleague, Ms. Sarah Drage. Canada brings this appeal to obtain this court's clarification on the question of whether damages under Section 24 of the Charter can ever be an appropriate and just remedy for alleged wrongdoing in the process leading to the enactment of primary legislation. Is that, uh, that is later declared unconstitutional. Is that clarification or to uh, change Macon, which uh, is, I think, the appropriate uh, court case? 
Well, uh, yes, Chief Justice, I will, just for if you indulge me for one moment, I will go to that, answer that question immediately. May I just begin with providing a bit of a roadmap of, of uh, where I was planning to go, and then I will skip to that point immediately. Um, in my roadmap, the plan is to discuss uh, some interpretive principles uh, for Section 24 of the Charter, and then to speak to the constitutional principles of parliamentary sovereignty, the separation of powers, and parliamentary privilege. The third point, which will be now become my first point, was to ad address the question of uh, clarification versus overturning. And um, fourth, I plan to highlight that meaningful remedies remain uh, to protect and vindicate charter rights absent the availability of damages for the enactment of primary legislation. Going then, uh, Chief Justice, to answer your question. Um, as we set out in our, our factum, Canada is saying that Macken should be clarified to make it clear that charter damages are not available for state con or, or, or that charter damages are only available for state conduct under a law that is declared unconstitutional. That was clearly wrong in bad faith and abusive process. We say that this is the only reconciliation of all the jurisprudence that accords with reading the Constitution as a whole and is that the Macken standard only applies to state conduct under the law. Given the acts... But that was not what Macken was about. It was a seeking of damages because the law was found to be unconstitutional. So effectively, this clarification is asking us to overrule Macken, is it not? Well, uh, I will certainly... Um, if that is the court, and that is what the uh, respondent has certainly argued, and if... Well, if this I, court, I guess I'm asking... Yes? was they were seeking damages based on the fact that the law was unconstitutional. It is my understanding that in Mackin there was also damages sought based on uh, a promise made by a member of the executive. I will say that because there was no indication of anything in the way of bad faith in Mackin that there was no analysis in, in detail. And so in Mackin and in Guimon prior to that, the possibility of damages for the enactment of unconstitutional legislation remained in the realm of the theoretical. However, accepting the, the proposition in the question uh, that you have asked Chief Justice Karakastanis and, and she, sorry, <laughs> promotion, uh, accepting, <laughs> accepting the proposition <laughs> in the question that Chief Justice and Justice Karakastanis you have both asked, um, can I say that there is compelling reasons why this short this court should overturn that aspect of Mackin where there was a suggestion of uh, theoretical damages. Significant practical concerns arise for a court that is called on to engage squarely with a claim for damages for the enactment of primary legislation later declared unconstitutional. Ms. Tellis Langdon, um, Mackin just relates to the standard though, the availability of coupling the possibility of coupling uh, a declaration under 52.1 and damages or a remedy under 24 really goes back to Schachter. And so it wouldn't, that, that's the first issue. Can you couple these things? The second is, uh, and of course your absolute immunity standard mean, effectively means you can't couple them. So the first question is the availability of coupling 52 and a 24.1. The second is the standard. 
Um, so it, it seems to me it isn't just Makin that's in play, it's also Schachter, G, uh, Conseil Scolaire. So that seems to me to be a, a bigger uh, 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 challenge for you because you're asking a lot to, to be departed from, uh, uh, including you know, the first statement from Chief Justice Lemaire. But I guess my, my, my question is, uh, the way you phrase the issue seems to collapse the two questions that were posed before the New Brunswick Court of Appeal, uh, New Brunswick Court of Queen's Bench and then the Court of Appeal. The first relating to the inputs, uh, what happens in the legislative process, and the second relating to the output, the legislation itself. And it seems to me that questions of parliamentary privilege, for example, and separation of powers and parliamentary sovereignty may be more important for the first question and more of a, an obstacle to those issues being scrutinized, the legislature being put on trial, uh, when we're dealing with the first question, the inputs, but the outputs seems to me, it seems perfectly fair game to say um, the, the outputs, if legislation harms, is manifestly unconstitutional and harms Canadians, then perhaps there should be a remedy for that. In the case of torture, for example, legislation that imposes mandatory torture or sterilization, for example, why shouldn't there be a remedy and damages for that? So let me try to unpack that question, uh, Justice Jamal, because there were a, a number of uh, subpoints there. First, on Schachter, section, Schachter said a Section 24 remedy cannot be paired with a Section 52 remedy. It was clear that the remedy for unconstitutional legislation... Rarely. Rarely would be available. It doesn't say never. He said rarely. Rarely. I'll accept that. Um, on the collapse point, in Miccosu Cree, the, this, this court was clear uh, that the process of preparation of the legislation is part of the legislative process, as Justice Rowe set out in, in 160, and which is uh, uh, paragraph 160 of Mikasu. has no bearing on this case. It was to decide whether there was a duty to consult the legislature when they are acting uh, and, and they are uh, adopting legislation. That has nothing to do with our case. Well, in Mikasu, although the question had to do with whether there was a duty to consult, the fundamental principles, constitutional principles of parliamentary sovereignty, the separation of powers, and parliamentary privilege on which this court based its decision, those principles remain the same, regardless of whether you're in Mikasu or you're here. Right. So those principles remain the same. Yeah. But we also said in Mikasu that they weren't the only principles. And in Mikasu, we said we can't intervene in their process, in Parliament's process of who they're going to talk to, how they're going to pass their laws. Very different application of the principles than you're urging us to do here. I, I mean, I have to agree with um, the Chief Justice, I just see Mikasu as not dealing with this issue. And on, and on that, Mr. Langdon, uh, the respondent in its factum, in his factum, I should say, in paragraph 70, says that uh, the Charter Damages Analysis under 24.1 is conceptually distinct from the recognition of a new duty under Section 35, which was at issue in Mikisu. And they say in the Charter context, uh, the basis for a Section 24.1 claim is not the presence of pre-legislative misconduct, if there, there was any, but rather the violation of a charter right. And the respondent says Section 24.1 does not provide a freestanding cause of action based on parliamentary wrongdoing, 
uh, in the absence of a charter breach. What do you say on that? It is the charter breach which is the basis of 24-1. Under the ward analysis, if the charter breach emanates from the law, there will absolutely be good governance considerations. So for the respondent to succeed in that claim, the respondent will have to prove, assuming if the Mackin standard is confirmed and applied, the respondent would have to prove that Parliament, that, the, that in the legislative process, there was bad faith or an abuse of Parliament's legislative power. Yeah, but this power. is the threshold they have to meet, but it does not mean there is no cause of action. There could be a cause of action if there was a violation of a charter right. But to consider that claim, when the violation stems from the legislation as opposed to any action of government officials under that legislation, then in every single one of those cases, the judge would come headlong into the principles of parliamentary sovereignty, parliamentary privilege, and the separation of powers. They would be asking the court in every single one of those cases to look at the legislative process and assess whether parliament whether the legislative branch engaged in well, wrongdoing in the legislative process. Let's go process. back to Justice Jamal's example. If the, there is legislation providing that torture must be applied in Canada, don't you think that on the face of it, uh, there is a breach of the Charter, the charter of Rights? So damages uh, are not necessary. To no, but it's one, one possible. But not necessary to provide a remedy in that case. On such a, on such an example with... Well, the legislation would be unconstitutional, but what about the person who's been tortured? Let's say, we're assuming somebody has been tortured. Let's say the legislation provides every year on the anniversary of the offence you get waterboarded, and you are waterboarded, and then five years later you challenge it. I, mean, I recognise it's an extreme example, but we have to have an extreme example to test the principle. Uh, surely somebody who's... It's manifestly clearly unconstitutional as a violation of Section 12. Why shouldn't there be when somebody is harmed, saying that, well, actually, uh, Schachter says it's rarely available as an individual remedy, why shouldn't somebody be compensated? And why, you can judge that without uh, trespass, that goes back to my issue about the first question, without inquiring into the, uh, you know, the intent of specific members of parliament. Uh, uh, and perhaps th this, is, this goes to my question about the, maybe abuse of power and bad faith aren't the right standard. Uh, on how making should perhaps be uh, tweaked. Bad faith and abuse of power really would trespass on parliamentary privilege, which seems to be the, the elephant in the room. Uh, but clearly wrong really does focus on the outputs of the legislations. So I wonder if you could have your thoughts on that. First of all, I would disagree with the premise that we should have an extreme example. We're talking here about effectively a, a rogue parliament example and the idea of uh, the presumption of constitutionality presumes that no legislature would enact such a legislation but taking that hypothetical extremely unlikely rogue parliament or, or situation or sterilization for example for sterilization and, and again I, I think it, in post-charter era no legislature would enact such a legislation. What about, what about, but, but, but what about mandatory, mandatory um, uh, segregation in prison? Mandatory, not, not discretionary, but in the legislation itself in prison. I mean, that's not so extreme. 
If I've understood your position correctly, <laughs> it, 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 let me see if I, if I have understood your position correctly, that if someone is waterboarded pursuant to the legislation or subject to mandatory segregation, they can sue because of the damages in implementing the legislation rather than the harm being the adoption of the legislation. In other words, it's, the, the, the citizen is not without a remedy. It's, it's who's wrong. Is it the wrong of the official who carries out the act, or is it the wrong of the legislature for adopting the legislation? That's not what you said, but maybe you would like to well, adopt the same, the same statement. Well, I, I, that is one of the points that I would have made. If, if I can just have a moment uh, to maybe answer the question, it seems to be <laughs> an occupation. So, in the rogue parliament example, and I would suggest, Justice Jamal, that post-CCLA, uh, the decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal on CCLA, mandatory segregation would not be enacted in, in either. Be but putting aside the presumption of constitutionality, damages are not necessary to remedy that situation. First of all, in a clearly, obviously unconstitutional legislation, injunctive relief preventing the implementation of that legislation is available. And that would be an immediate, swift remedy that would protect the individual's charter rights. That injunction could remain in place while an application challenging the validity of that legislation proceeded. So there, this court has remedial powers to prevent the application of that entirely unconstitutional legislation. And then- Wouldn't that, uh, excuse me, wouldn't that be a concern? It's a Justice Morrow by video, uh, in the sense uh, that the next challenge may well be on the ability of a court to issue interim injunctive relief, because that might be considered, post our, our determination of this case, an intrusion on the process of legislating, because you're talking at this point in an interim context uh, about a bill. No, and I, preventing the bill from being uh, passed. Is that correct? I'm not talking about a bill. I'm talking about legislation is passed. Once it's passed, after the fact, if there is a piece of legislation that is passed, in, enacted, gone through the entire parliamentary process, and is after the fact, it's in effect. There's no question that this court has injunctive uh, jurisdiction to stay the application of that legislation that is enacted under the RJR McDonald test, and that would be flow from section 52 of the Constitution. But, but surely the fact that there may be other remedies is not an answer to why there should be absolute immunity to, the, to, to Parliament. I'm, I'm looking at Macon. Macon says, it sums up both public officials and legislative bodies enjoy limited immunity against actions in civil liability based on the fact that a legislative instrument is invalid. That is in civil liability pre-charter. Macon says that that is relevant for charter damages. But you're asking for an absolute liability that did not even exist in civil proceedings before the enactment of the charter. On what basis? Pre-charter, there was no civil liability for Parliament's enactment of legislation. There was a rule, if, if someone sued uh, Parliament, are you saying the statement is wrong in Macon? In the legal if, sense, if, therefore, 
if you in, Ma mm -hmm. so in, in Macken, or Macon, the oh, Macon. Justice Gontier cited that ex the extract from the administrative law textbook that made it clear that there was no um, there was no civil claim pre-charter for the enactment of legislation. It was only for after the fact wrongful administration of that legislation. Well, I'm looking at paragraph 78. Perhaps you can look at it a little later. Yeah, I don't have it in. I don't yeah. have it in front of me. But it okay. starts by saying, as a general rule of public law, absent conduct that is clearly wrong in bad faith or an abuse of process, the courts will not award damages for the harm suffered as a result of the mere enactment of a law. And he goes. He cites Wellbridge, and then he goes on and says something similar again. But in any event, that's still almost beside the point. I'm still seeking for the reason why you say absolute immunity is appropriate in a constitutional democracy and in an era where we believe there needs to be accountability and transparency. I'm just having difficulty with the underlying basic principles. Well, the uh, accountability when it comes to the application of the Charter to Parliament comes through this Court's judicial review under Section 52 of the Charter. That is, as this court said in G, the expression of constitutionalism is through section 52 of we the Charter. We also said there needed to be effective remedial. A right is not meaningful without effective remedy. What about damages? Well, and as I responded to Justice Jamal, in the extreme cases, there is an effective remedy. Section 52 is a powerful tool and this court has very recently in many of its judgments expanded the use of 52 coupled with 24 remedies to ensure that an individual can um, benefit from declarations of invalidity yeah, but if the damages are done be because of that legislation it's already done whether you declare the legislation unconstitutional or not but even if you declare it unconstitutional there could be damages suffered by a citizen for instance who would not be able to vote because legislation forbids his, his, his right to vote. Or you can imagine, Justice Jamal suggests a few options or scenarios. So it seems to me that 52 is one remedy, but 24-1, 24 exists because uh, it, could, could so, it could serve another purpose. Well, so 24-2 is interesting because clearly the collection of evidence can only have occurred by government officials. So if you're reading 24-1 and 2, if you're reading 24 as a whole, that suggests it also applies to, to the action of government officials, not a legislative branch of government. As for the compensatory function of damages, can I, can not I just ask every... you a question about that? Do you see a difference between what happens inside of parliament versus what MPs and others do inside of their office? with regards to memos, et cetera? Well, it would depend on what MPs are doing within their office if those memos are related to the develop policy development of the legislation. Well, of course, that's, that's what I'm talking about. So if it's related to what goes on in the House, what kind of an impact does that have overall with regard to as opposed to what happens in Parliament? Well, we know Parliament is... is uh, sovereign and to the executive does not control parliament uh, this court was clear about that in in Mikasu and also in pan canadian securities reference so 
the, in that preparatory pre-legislative phase, phase, what goes from the minister's office and ultimately from cabinet and gets introduced as a bill in parliament, it is then parliament that debates it. It, it off, uh, functions as the grand inquest of the nation. And it is parliament's role then to invite, for example, witnesses to provide testimony, to consider all of the factors that parliament considers in making the policy decisions and enacting the law to put those policy decisions into effect, which is an expression of democracy. On the, returning to the compensatory damages question, uh, not every harm in Canadian law is compensable. Legislation routinely has effects for some people that may be negative to their interests, but absent any misfeasance in a public officer in applying that legislation, there is no expectation that this is compensable. Right, but can uh, this is Justice Martin on the screen. Hello. Um, uh, uh, nobody's arguing that all harm is compensable. Um, what I think I want to focus your attention on is Macon and, and Ward. Um, in asking for absolute liability, uh, you're asking us to overrule uh, both of those cases. Uh, Macon is on all fours. It dealt with unconstitutional legislation, and we have a carefully calibrated decision of this court that sets out that uh, charter damages are possible and may arise where uh, they're on the standard, a high standard, of clearly wrong, bad faith, or abusive process, and that there are good governance considerations that need to be taken into account. Um, we have that not only endorsed, but fully explained as a, a sound legal principle in the subsequent ward decision. And so my question to you relates, relates to this. On what basis can we overrule that those cases, given we have standards in Bedford and Carter as to when it is we will revisit our precedents that I don't see uh, fully addressed um, in, in your arguments. and. Even if you're trying to say that there are justifiable concerns, perhaps, about parliamentary sovereignty and privilege and separation of powers, those were also concerns that were at the heart of both Maycomb and Ward. These are not new considerations. They were part of the careful calibration that the, that the court engaged in in those cases. So I, I don't understand the premise on which you're coming forward. There has not been a floodgates. There has not been all of those uh, things that, that may be predicted um, in the 20 years since we've had those, those cases. So I'd like to hear the justification under Bedford and Carter for why you're asking us to overrule our precedent. So, again, let me try to unpack that and, and answer some of the embedded questions. Uh, I'll, short answer is Bedford and Carter is not the applicable uh, framework. That is for uh, vertical stare decisis. It's uh, compelling reasons is the test that uh, so far has been endorsed by a majority. And, of course, there is the Kirkpatrick framework that a... Uh, Minor that was proposed by a minority of, of the judges of this court quite recently. Um, before I return to addressing why, under, why there are compelling reasons, I'll say we are not asking this court to overturn Ward. To be clear, what we're saying is that just as in Ernst, where Justice Cromwell, for, uh, in his reasons, made it clear that 
it would, there would never be a case where there would be, it would be appropriate and just to award remedies in when an administrative tribunal is exercising an adjudicative function. We say that this is a case like Ernst, where it can never be appropriate and just. And at paragraph 19 of Ward, this court made it clear that the prohibition on cutting down the amulet of section 24 does not preclude judicial clarification of when it may be appropriate and adjust to award damages. We are asking for that judicial clarification here. And Justice Martin, as for the, um, the compelling reasons, which uh, we've come a bit full circle now, um, as for the compelling reasons, the, we say that if, if you're looking at the Kirkpatrick framework, um, that both the, is unworkable and it has been attenuated by this court's subsequent jurisprudence. It's unworkable because when a trial judge is actually faced with adjudicating such a claim, and there are many claims in the system now where this has been raised, which is why this matter is coming forward now. And the judge, whose conduct? What misconduct is to be assessed? How can this be achieved without piercing parliamentary privilege? Or but aren't these evidentiary principles? I mean, as to how it is that you're going to go about proving whether there has been uh, something that's clearly wrong or in bad faith or an abusive process. We have abusive process. We, we understand how to do that. And Macon even addresses this itself in paragraph 83. They're talking about different evidence about the minister that you were saying to, to fail to keep his promise to, to refer something to a committee. I mean, th these don't go to the core legal issue of whether or not there is a potential liability under Section 24.1. These might go to either the good governance uh, criteria or the evidentiary principles about how uh, something like bad faith, abusive process, or clearly wrong can be proven. Can I, uh, can I just add to Justice Martin's question by noting that in your fact that paragraph 34, after having told us that Ward is maybe not the right framework, I understood you to acknowledge that one could analyze the problem through the Ward framework and deal with the issues that you've raised, parliamentary sovereignty, separation of powers, parliamentary privilege, as countervailing considerations um, that might preclude charter damages for the enactment of primary legislation. The, the, it, I'm wondering if that might be more helpful to us rather than kind of swinging for the fences, knocking Ward out of the park, knocking Macon out of the park, working within the framework that was developed in Ward that, that uh, affirmed Macon as fitting into the, the project and that you yourself acknowledge in your factum as an alternative path. We are in no way suggesting that Ward is not, should be overruled or revisited. What we are saying is that this case turns on interpretation of Section 24. So you could situate it within the Ward framework and do as Justice Cromwell did in Ernst, where he said, within the Ward framework, because these countervailing factors are present in all of these cases, there's no need for a case-by-case -case analysis. It will always there should be an absolute immunity because it will always be inappropriate to 
award damages in that context. So the that would be overruling Macon. I mean, just call it what it is, and then give us the reasons why you think we should. And in the course of doing so, bear in mind that not all of us read Macon the same way. And and and. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there. A question, but is it? I'm not sure that was a question. I'm, I'm, you I'm can not sure that was a question. Answer Justice Kirkatsanis. On the premise that we're overruling Macon, um, and I, I know there is an argument from the Senate, Speaker of the House of Commons that it's obiter, um, we are saying there are, it's unworkable, it's practically unworkable, and it has been attenuated by subsequent jurisprudence. And the, as we've set out in paragraph Give us some detail about why it's unworkable. I mean, I look at cases like Brazo and some of the others, and I see there's lots of evidence that can be considered by a court. Um, we look at the purposes of legislation for purposes of interpretation all the time. I've just, I'm having trouble understanding why you say it's unworkable, so it would be helpful to me if you could explain that. Well, Brazo, in fact, is a very good example of where damages can be granted for the conduct of government officials under legislation, because that's what was remedied in Brazil, was the conduct of officials under legislation. We know in the CCLA case, the legislation was quashed because it did not put up adequate guardrails to prevent against um, segregation beyond 15 days. In Brazil, though, it was the focus of the fact that how the correctional officials implemented that legislation and, and so that's a demonstration of where that distinction lies. Brazil did not need to, did not award damages on the basis of the legislation. Well, how can it be? How can it be that uh, if it's left to prison officials to, to, to exercise discretion, whether to put somebody in solitary confinement, damages can be available? But if the legislation stipulates there shall be solitary confinement for certain offences as a mandatory penalty, that there's no compensation available. If there, that doesn't make any sense to me. That, uh, that that basis of distinction. But I do think it's true, as you said in your factum, paragraph 70 and following, the authorities that were cited by Justice Gonti and Macon don't really support, they're all cases of executive action. They don't support the rule that was enunciated. I agree, that's absolutely un incontrovertible. Uh, but that is the rule that's been enunciated. Um, it also didn't consider parliamentary privilege. Macon didn't talk about parliamentary privilege in any way. And that is a countervailing principle for the input of legislation. So perhaps there are grounds to say Macon stipulated a rule that wasn't supported, that didn't consider these other countervailing principles. And then the question is, what should the rule be? On the latter part of what you said, Justice Small, I absolutely agree. And I'm glad that you have been persuaded by that portion of our argument in our factum. Uh, on the former portion, uh, I think testing this with an extreme hypothetical to suggest that any legislature or parliament would enact legislation that requires mandatory um, segregation in the face of the court's ruling saying that it's unconstitutional, that is, that is just an untenable uh, hypothetical. It is not something that would occur in our constitutional democracy with the presumption of constitutionality, with the dialogue between the court and, and legislatures and the way in which 
Canadian constitutional democracy has functioned. But can I, I go back to your point that that would be conduct of officials under legislation and that how is somehow a different category? Um, what would Mr. Power do in a situation as before us? Would he have an action for the conduct of the state actor that uh, did not give him his, uh, his uh, pardon? Well, so Mr. Power had remedies long before this action. Mr. Power no, applied talking about his alternative remedies or his timing or any any of that. I'm just asking about would there be under your rubric that you're putting forward before us a charter damages claim for the conduct of being denied by a state actor a pardon under unconstitutional legislation. In Mr. Power's case, there are no allegations of any bad faith action on any government official, so the answer would be no. But Mr. Power, as you, we've set out in our factum, had ample remedies available to him much earlier in the process. He could have sought judicial review had of there the decision. Been, had there been such allegations, would he have a right to claim damages under 24-1? Had such allegations been made? Had there been allegations and evidence of bad faith application of the law to his case, um, I'm not sure how that might occur in this context, but if there were examples of bad faith, abusive behavior by officials applying the legislation, then yes. That is not what has occurred here um, based on the statement of claim, but that is what occurred in Brazil and in Francis, where the Charter damages were awarded on the basis of the way in which government officials administered. Uh, I think there is no dispute about the bad faith application. We are discussing about bad faith enactment of a legislation. But I think that when there is an application of a legislation in bad faith, uh, I think that it is clear that there is a cause of action under 24.1. Yes, when it's in the application realm, yes. But if it's just on the realm of the legislation itself, that there's no bad faith application of, of legislation, there's no uh, independent breach of charter rights on the, by government officials uh, applying that legislation, if the claim is based just on the legislation itself, on the fact that the legislation, Parliament enacted the legislation, and in then bad it faith, was... In bad faith? If there's such allegation... Is there a right of action? How do you prove bad faith in the Parliament? I, I would say no. I would say that this court cannot inquire into bad faith on the part of Parliament. How does Parliament exercise its legislative authority in bad faith when its constitutional so authority what is if there's a statement of a parliamentarian outside of Parliament that, that proves bad faith? Improper purpose. What if there is a memo in the e office or if there is a witness. I mean, I, I guess my point here is that parliamentary privilege would probably mean that there were constraints on what could be offered to prove whether the threshold, a high threshold, I would add, of limited immunity exists. But why would it require absolute immunity? But who's bad faith in that? So if, if a minister makes a statement outside of Parliament, or if a minister says, yes, we brought this forward for bad faith, well, it then went to Parliament. It was debated in the House of Commons. It was debated in Senate. It went through committee. Are, well, are we attributing that bad faith in the preparatory stage? The trial stage? judge would probably say no then. 
But what if the memo was something different? What if it says we had a big meeting and who knows? I guess my point is these are evidentiary matters that would depend on the evidence and a trial judge would look at it and say, this doesn't meet the threshold or this doesn't establish it or it just might be, as Justice Jamal has suggested, that it is clearly wrong, the legislation. It is clearly unconstitutional and therefore you can make certain presumptions about the, the, the conduct in passing that legislation. I, t I took you to be saying, Ms. Tellis Lang, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the standard of bad faith and abuse of power simply are inapplicable when we're, taking, when we're speaking of an output of Parliament, duly enacted legislation. It may be unconstitutional, but whatever anybody's memo says, uh, a vote duly taken in the House uh, and in adopted legislation cannot be in bad faith. Correct. It cannot be an abuse of power. Correct. But it can be clearly wrong. Perhaps it can be clearly manifestly unconstitutional. So that's why I wonder whether that is the appropriate tweak of Macon, uh, Macken, uh, that legislation that is so far outside constitutional norms may be actionable. But I think you've got a fair point that bad faith and abuse of power can't be the standards without putting Parliament on trial, not just the individual members, but Parliament as an institution. And that's manifestly a trespass on parliamentary privilege. We certainly agree with, with that, Justice Jamal, that you cannot put Parliament on trial and assess bad faith or abusive process. It's manifestly Parliament's constitutional role to make policy just choices, debate the legislation, and enact laws. So you can now, talk uh, about Parliament, you can talk about, you can refer to government. Uh, that might be a question eventually to, to be decided um, by the judge on the merit. But uh, don't you think that the Attorney General can represent all the entities? When we speak of the Government of Canada, that typically is a reference to the Executive. Now, the Attorney General of Canada as a law officer defends the constitutional validity of the legislation. And the Attorney General of Canada in its executive role provides, a, federally in any event, provides a charter statement as to its view of the constitutionality of the I legislation, would. but ultimately it's Parliament that makes the choice to enact or not enact that legislation. And I've lost my train of thought. Well, I, um, it, while you've lost it, I can add that the Attorney General is not acting just as an executive, but as a Chief Law Officer of the Crown. And what happens, for example, if Parliament chooses to ignore the advice of the Attorney General? But in any event, I guess the point that I, I would appreciate some guidance on is this distinction between the executive and, and parliament when you speak of government. The charter applies to parliament. And when we talk about the state, it's the state. It's, it's, the state acts in many different ways, but the, the parliament is not immune from the charter. Section 32.1 says it applies to parliament. Absolutely, but to say the charter applies to parliament does not say how the Charter applies to Parliament. The Charter applies to the legislative outputs of Parliament, not to Parliament's process. And um, the, uh, okay. uh, I was Well, having, having said that, uh, Justice Morrow again, in a clearly wrong example, where you have unconstitutional legislation, it is clearly wrong, what would you do with a civil action, or would there now be a civil action against those who purport to implement it. Is that available? Because 
if it isn't, there's no recourse for somebody who may well have suffered legitimate damages from that particular law. In the context of a clearly wrong piece of legislation in Canada, the challenge would come swiftly. And this court has injunctive power to prevent the application of that legislation and can overturn it and rule that the legislation is unconstitutional under Section 52. If it that has been applied in the meantime. Pardon me? If it has been applied in the meantime. Let's say that I'm going to take the torture example. I know it is an ex extreme example, but let's say the legislation is adopted, there is a constitutional challenge, and in the meantime, somebody is tortured. Well, then the remedy would not be under Section 24.1 of the Charter. In that extreme example, there may be excretion payments and an acknowledgement of of the decision, uh, uh, of how wrong that decision was, but the remedy would not be under Section 24.1 of the Charter against, the, against Parliament as a result, result of the enactment of the law. If but why? Are you, are you then transferring that then to those, the officials who implement the law? Would there be um, responsibility there in a civil context? Because if there is, it, it really isn't much different, is it? They're simply implementing a law that is unconstitutional. So what would be the difference if you allow that there may be an action against those who implement? Well, in, in this really extreme example, I think there may be an action against the officials for clearly wrong behavior despite the legislation because now we're getting into almost an era of war crimes analysis. But I'm going to take another example, segregation. And then, uh, under uh, presumptively valid legislation, and it is applied, and somebody is segregated, and it breaches uh, or her Section 7 right. And then, later on, the law is found unconstitutional. But for that application of the law in the meantime, what does happen? Does the person have a recourse under 24-1? In, in that? Precise example where it's not again, again it's I, I, I take issue with the like with that legislation being legislation that would be enacted in, in, in the state of the law today. But in that yeah, example, but you're, you're talking about absolute immunity, so we can talk about absolute example. In, in, in if there was no bad faith in the enactment in, in the administration of the legislation, nothing that was an abusive process or nothing that was clearly wrong in the way in which the legislation was applied then no there are three there are three phases here that I'm, I'm trying to get i'm trying to understand your position to the extent that we're receiving it um, the first one is what leads up to the tabling of the legislation in parliament or provincial legislature and you have one of your questions is can the Crown in its executive capacity be held liable in damages for governmental officials and ministers preparing and drafting a proposed bill? That's your first question. The second phase, it seems to me, is the period between the introduction of the bill in the legislature and its royal assent, the, com the completion of the adoption of the bill. And that is addressed in your second question. Can the Crown be held liable for damages, in damages for Parliament enacting a bill into law? Okay. And in the third phase is the giving effect 
to the law once, it's, once it's on, the statute is on the books. And I, I think it's probably common ground that the law is clear with respect to the remedies that are available once the uh, bill has been enacted in, in terms of it, implementing it. Um, and, and I've understood you to be addressing yourself to whether, and, and I come back to your, to your question, right, which I think is the question before the court, is can the Crown be held liable in damages for Parliament enacting a bill into law, which I take to be the process from first reading to royal assent? And can you tell us succinctly why holding the Crown liable for something between first reading and royal assent is problematic vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, parliamentary privilege. Holding the Crown liable for the enactment phase from first reading to enactment would breach parliamentary privilege because it would be questioning what Parliament did in its core constitutional function. It would be a breach of uh, the separation of powers, it would be obliging the judiciary to step into and judging how Parliament exercised the process, its, its fundamental constitutional role. That is Parliament's realm. And as for your first point, Justice Rowe, where you were speaking about the preparatory phase of the legislation, the up to tabling, uh, as you have laid it out so clearly in paragraph 160 of Mecca Sucre, we say that that is included in the absolute immunity because the executive does not control parliament. So in that drafting phase, it, there, as you said in Mikasukri, those that's part of the legislative process. And once the bill is introduced into parliament, parliament as the grand inquest of the nation tests it, can amend it, can change it. So it's not the executive action that leads to the enactment of the law. It's parliament's action that leads to the enactment of law, which is why we have collapsed those two into a single question. But isn't it more fundamentally an answer to Justice Rowe's question? There's no liability until there's a law, right? That the give and take, the hustle and bustle, the putting forward of good ideas and bad ideas, really bad ideas, that's not actionable. That's not reviewable. What's reviewable is the output. And there can only be, so that's a more fundamental answer, is until you've got a law, there can be no charter breach. There can just be a zone in which Parliament is entitled to exercise free speech and to debate ideas. Yes, that once there's there is nothing actionable until the law is enacted, and then the remedy for an unconstitutional law is, and this court's role is fulfilled through Section 52 of the Constitution, and damages if the application of that law is done in a way that warrants constitutional damages. I think I still haven't fully answered the question as to why Mackin should be overturned. I have uh, noted the second and third factor that were identified in uh, Kirkpatrick as uh, factors that can demonstrate that it is com uh, there are compelling reasons. Um, we have set out in our factum the reasons why it is practically unworkable. Courts are being faced with that issue now in multiple cases. 
Uh, I would also point to Alberta's and Newfoundland's submissions regarding the practical difficulties of a limited immunity and to Manitoba's factum for the analogy with judicial immunity in that regard. There are absolute immunities that do exist. On this aspect, so you, you, you're saying that there are precedents that would establish that it's not practical. Which, in which? Alberta's factum, I believe, they discuss the federal court's decision in Whaling, where there was a, a motion to strike, and the, um, the court, although they, they granted the motion but with leave to amend because they had said that the, the allegation of, of bad faith as it was in the statement of claim at the time was insufficient, but in that decision, the court grappled with some of these concerns. Mackin doesn't set out a clear standard. How do I do this anyway? They were articulated in that case. That, that case is proceeding. Liang is proceeding. There are other cases that are currently proceeding where the courts are being faced with this question. And how does the Attorney General of Canada de defend against such an allegation? The Attorney General of Canada can't waive parliamentary privilege. The Attorney General of Canada can't waive cabinet confidences. It's not the, it's, it's not can the Attorney General of Canada's role to waive either of those immunities. Uh, and so... But the AG is, the AG is, is concerned. The courts are struggling with the issues or maybe they are they will examine the issue but is there any precedent that says that it's not practical because you know when, when we look at precedent for instance in carter carter we, we reversed decision in roger gaze because of the nature of uh, science has evolved society's expectations have evolved there was one year of evidence uh, you know established before the first chart and so on and so forth and we said why we could uh, put aside the Rodriguez precedent, now Carter is the law. But do we have the same thing here? Well, we do have certainly the federal court's reasoning in Whaling, which is discussed in the Alberta Factum, where you see the judge raising questions, how is this going to be possible? So the practical unworkability is going to come as these cases proceed to the two trials, and there are a number of them in the system at the moment. Can, can, I ask, can, can I ask you this? You say the remedy is Section 52. Um, big, drug, uh, M, big M Drug Mart says that uh, uh, law can be unconstitutional for its purpose or effect. Let's talk about purpose. So the court needs to look to see whether the purpose of the legislation is um, uh, unconstitutional, would contravene the, the Constitution or the Charter. Are you saying that parliamentary privilege would prevent the court from looking at anything that is said in Parliament to establish improper purpose under Section 52? When you're looking for legislative purpose, when yes. you're looking to interpret the legislation or character, characterize its objective, that is, as we said in our, in our factum, a view looking at that material, not to question it, not to call it into question or, or que question whether there were, was bad faith, but to actually try to fulfill Parliament's legislative intent in the legislation, but the focus remains on the legislation. But it's You're bad faith. We say that if it's passed for improper purpose, that goes to the intent of Parliament. If it's passed for an improper purpose, otherwise 
lawful legislation can be unconstitutional. So I think what you're saying is, we say that it can be either unconstitutional in its purpose or effect. If it is by improper purpose, you can look at what is said in Parliament. I think I understand that's to be your position. But you're saying you cannot look at it to see if it is improper for the purposes of 24-1, just for the purposes of Section 52. You're interpreting the purpose of the legislation. Yes. Well, th that's not questioning Parliament's motives. That is a focus on the legislation itself in the pith and substance analysis. But how do you get that purpose uh, other than looking to see what people, we do it routinely. So I guess my point is, my question, although it's probably making a point, isn't it? Uh, my question is, um, if you are using what is said in, in, the, in the House at face value, you are not questioning the conduct, there's no civil consequences, you're not impugning the integrity of the particular speaker, but you're just taking the statements at face value in order to determine what the conduct or the intent was. Why would that run into parliamentary privilege? Well, I would note this court, uh, court's uh, caution on the use of that evidence. It's I been agree. clear that the best state per, uh, examination of purpose of legislation is purpose of statements in the legislation. Because you need to be cautious in imputing the statements of one member of parliament to parliament as a whole. And you, you can't get into the specific intent of each individual. So there's been lots of caution on the use of that, that evidence. But we address this in our um, reply factum although I'm not finding the paragraph at the moment. It's, we've all read your factum. So. Yes. And really what we're, we're, we're saying is that although the, the rule has been re relaxed somewhat from the historical rule where you couldn't look at it at all, it, it's supporting identifying the purpose of the legislation itself. And it's not is it a bad purpose? It's, is, is it a purpose that is sufficient to override charter rights where, it, it, um, where it's found that the legislation in its effect impacts a charter okay. right? so the... In this case, just, just to finish that point, if you don't mind, the, in this case, we would be looking at it for the purpose of establishing whether there were good government, governance countervailing factors in the ward. Why? And that would be the only purpose we'd be looking at it. Why would that? But the good governance factors that compel against a case-by-case -case analysis are parliamentary privilege and the separation of powers. Yes, it and goes both ways. But if you find improper purpose, that could be in favor of good governance. So I'm just saying that why is it so different if you're looking at it within step three? Because under section 52, the focus is the legislation, parliament's output, this court is clearly authorized under Section 52 to judicially review whether or not Parliament stayed within its constitutional guard, guardrails in the legislation it enacted. In the 24 approach, you're actually judging Parliament for the policy choices that it made. But here it's, it, it, it might be a red herring. To go, to go back to what Justice Jamal was saying, 
the damages will occur once an action is taken by, by government. In other words, um, there is le legislation which, at the face of it, might be um, might go against the Charter of Rights, might be unconstitutional, might be um, uh, illegal. Um, but Mr. Power doesn't say that. What he says in his proceedings is that uh, in, in trying to exercise his rights, then he was, he was, uh, he was confronted with this uh, illegal legislation. In other words, uh, it goes back to the example of Mr. Jamal. There was a, a, a cause of action, damages, and, 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 and causal link between those two in this case. Well, I mean, the legislation was subsequently declared unconstitutional following a complete trial. But, I mean, we know when Parliament is enacting legislation, it's not necessarily clear that those are our problem. But I think, Justice Jamal, I, I would like to return to your question because it seems um, I, I'm sensing some discomfort with, from the court, from the bench, on an absolute immunity. So if this court is of the view that it's not accepting Canada's view that an absolute immunity should be granted, then um, we're, Mackin still needs to be clarified. There are a lot of problems with Mackin. Bad faith has got to be eliminated because you cannot question whether Parliament behaved in bad faith. So if this court is looking to clarify Mackin, then we would point to Ontario and uh, BC's alternative as the test where Parliament enacts legislation that is clearly wrong, assessed based on the existence of jurisprudence already saying that that behavior was unconstitutional. So in your isn't, example- isn't, isn't that it? That's the, it's the gap. It's all about the gap between constitutional standards and what the legislation provides and the practical difficulties you've talked about. As I understand it, it's look, anybody can put a statement of claim when legislation is declared unconstitutional and said this is clearly wrong and a, a bad faith and abuse of power. And then what are you supposed to do? You've got that in the pleading. The judge is going to say, well, I have to apply making. They've pleaded that, so it has to go to trial. Which is that's, the, that's the problem. But, uh, and then you've got this impossible problem. But a clearly wrong standard, tossing bad faith and abuse of power, is all about the gap between constitutional norms and the, what the legislation provides. That seems to me to be a, 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 a standard that can be pleaded with particulars, that can be not just asserted, and then you don't have the practical problem that you've alluded to. The, the, the legislation was enacted, in your example, imposing mandatory segregation beyond 15 days. That would be clearly wrong, and it would be directly contrary to decisions of, well, of the Ontario Court of Appeal finding it to be unconstitutional. If, if this court is not inclined towards the absolute immunity, then we would uh, point to Ontario and BC's um, clarification of what the standard should be. But uh, from, can't it be clearly wrong as it was in Brasseau, just under your proposed standard? You say that it has to be um, already proclaimed to be unconstitutional. In Brasseau, they said it was unconstitutional because it was clearly wrong based on all of the evidence that was available for uh, uh, decades. But Brazil was based on the, app, the implementation. The legislation that got declared unconstitutional was, was found to be unconstitutional because it didn't have adequate guardrails. But the action in Brazil and in Francis was based on how correctional officials implemented that. The legislation didn't say they had to 
put individuals in segregation for longer than 15 days. So it was directed towards no, the implementation. No, my point. My point is that in Brazil, they didn't have a previous decision that said it was unconstitutional. They looked at the, the, the realm of available evidence and, and decided that this was a kind of legislation that was unconstitutional and should have basically been known to be unconstitutional because of all of the other reports that were in evidence. Uh, so that's my, my you're, you're saying that it's, we can only, under your standard, say it's clearly wrong if a court has already said it's wrong. And I'm saying, how does that work with Brazo? And they're finding that something was wrong because of pre-existing reports, not pre-existing judgments. Well, Brazo is focused on the implementation of the legislation. Mm. Uh, I, my I time, is, time is, is, up. is well up. If, if you want to conclude, I mean, we asked so many questions that uh, I would allow you to have a minute or two more, if you need uh, it. I, um, well, you have, you have read our factum. You obviously understand our position. And um, I, I don't know that there's anything more I can say in the concluding two minutes. Um, I, I will just say that uh, with respect to uh, the respondent's request for costs in any event of the cause, we, uh, we accept that obviously they should get costs if they're successful, but we think the normal rule of cost should apply. Canada does not seek costs, however. Very well. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Merci, Mme Zaswar. Ravi Amarnat. Chief Justice, Justices, should this court not accept Canada's position, Ontario submits that Macon need not be overturned, but the test should be revised and clarified. Under this revised test, charter damages would be available for the enactment of unconstitutional legislation in circumstances where one, there is binding authority that directly determines the issue, and two, the defending government does not have a credible legal argument for distinguishing that authority. There are three points I wish to make today. First, the proposed test maintains the appropriately high threshold for charter damages as set out in Macon, Macon. Second, the proposed test is easier to apply than the Macon test. And three, the proposed test does not leave litigants without an effective remedy for unconstitutional laws. The first point is that the proposed test maintains the appropriately high threshold set out in Macon and affirmed by this court in Ward for awarding charter damages for unconstitutional legislation. In Macon, this court held that absent conduct that is clearly wrong in bad faith or an abuse of power, courts will not award damages suffered 
suffer harm as a result for the mere enactment of a law that is subsequently declared to be unconstitutional. As this court later recognized in Ward, the rule of law would be undermined if governments were deterred from enforcing the law by the possibility of future damage awards. Consistent with Macon, Ward, and Conseil Scolaire, which are all highlighted in our condensed book, the proposed test permits democratically elected legislatures to be responsive to their constituents without fear of monetary sanction. Mr. Amanath, Mr. Amanath uh, your, your test is, a, I find it a helpful one, but it is really an example of what may be clearly wrong. It may not exhaust what is clearly wrong. So um, I wonder if you could speak to that. Why is that the only way something could be clearly, some legislation could be clearly wrong or clearly unconstitutional? Well, in our submission, something is clearly wrong because there is a binding authority that uh, sets out the law and a government has not advanced you know, a credible argument for why, uh, for how to distinguish that precedent. So the requirement for a precedent gives notice to governments of a potential constitutional issue should it in wish to enact legislation. But we've never, had, we've never had a case on waterboarding, for example, before the Supreme Court or before to my knowledge, any court in Canada. So why do we have to have a binding precedent? On your test, maybe unless there's been a case on waterboarding, there'd be no remedy. And it may be that there's a case uh, uh, illustrating a similar principle whereby that could be, um, it may not be waterboarding specifically, but uh, acts of a similar nature could be found to be binding. But this test is consistent even with what this court has found in Macon. In Macon, for example, uh, this court held that um, it's consistent, it? perhaps, yeah. but it's under inclusive. Macon does give the prospect of something being in bad faith or an abuse of power. And so to take an example, um, if a government uh, says that something's closer to the line, so it might not be clearly wrong, even at a first instance analysis, but enacts it for bad faith, uh, in bad faith or for an improper purpose to target a particular individual or whatever, uh, why should the clearly wrong standard be the only method of accountability when Macon says it's the three? Uh, well, in our submission, uh, Justice Martin, um, as this court has held even as recently as Murray Hall, in its final analysis, the substance of legislation that needs to be characterized, not speeches in parliament or utterances in the press, so it may be even that there are nefarious motives for legislation, but that legislation in substance is constitutional. There may be wholly uh, noble motives for enacting legislation, which is found to be unconstitutional. So rather than focus on the motives that emanate legislation, our test focuses on the case law and evidence that are before court already within a constitutional challenge. Mr. Amanoff, what, what, the, the legislation, if it, if it looks good, say a padlock law, on its face it looks good, but it appears to be enacted to target a religious community that you can't see it on its face. But when you go looking a little further in motive, and as motive may be revealed, um, you find perhaps something that's not clearly wrong, but that may be an abuse of power or undertaken in bad faith. Is there not a little bit of wiggle room to say that clearly wrong is not 
all-encompassing or your new test is not all-encompassing? Uh, well, again, what's ultimately administered, uh, what's ultimately adjudicated upon is the substance of legislation, regardless of the motives for that legislation. So uh, in our submission, uh, given the high threshold that is required for charter damages in the enactment of unconstitutional legislation, what should be looked at is whether a government had a basis, uh, whether there was authority that set out the law, and whether, in fact, uh, the government has uh, advanced a credible legal argument to depart from that yes. authority. But isn't that really about conduct? Because you're saying that if there is a credible basis to believe that it's constitutional, then the government um, was in compliance with the Charter because the Charter applies to the government and it applies to Parliament and the executive. If it's clearly wrong, what we're, what, I mean, first of all, Macon said the conduct was clearly wrong, but if we're looking at the legislation and it on its face is clearly unconstitutional, aren't we really saying that what the state did in passing that clearly unconstitutional law is that they were at least reckless, if not intentional, about the constitutionality of, of that legislation. So I'm just having some difficulty divorcing um, the, 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 the conduct from your test. If, if, I don't and, know if and, I was clear, but I, the charter applies to government. Sense. It doesn't, the, the, the output is what we're judging. Does it comply with the standard? But section 32, the government applies to parliament, to the executive, to all. And um, at the end of the day, if it's clearly wrong, we're saying that they were wrong to pass it. And what we would say is the, the only way a judge who is adjudicating a case can know if something is clearly wrong is to assess the evidence that government has put forth in support of the legislation. So there may be cases, uh, what they have before them in any case is case law and, and evidence. And if the evidence cannot distinguish a past authority, then there may be cases where for the enactment of legislation, uh, for the mere enactment of legislation, that charter damages can flow. But to presuppose something is clearly wrong would go against this court's holdings, consistent holdings since McKay <clears throat> and going forward, that cases are to be decided on their own evidentiary record. But that would pierce yeah. parliamentary privilege, wouldn't it? Uh, not the evidence uh, used to support a, a piece of legislation. So for, I mean, this happens all the time. So for example, in Harper and Liebman, that would be, for example, a second look case. A piece of legislation was de uh, was declared unconstitutional in Liebman. In Harper, this government, uh, there was a there was a revision to the legislation, and then courts will assess based on the evidence have they cured the constitutional defect that was advanced, and the credible legal argument position need not be successful. So a court may not may determine even though you've had a second look, even though you've revised the legislation, uh, that. Even though you've revised the legislation, a court may determine we still find that there's a constitutional defect. But our position is that shouldn't give rise automatically to damages. What matters is that the government has attempted to at least address the constitutional defect in its legislation, and that's consistent in our position. No, nobody, but nobody is suggesting automatic. Everybody accepts there's a principle of constitutionalism and that the threshold should be high. So I guess I, I'm not sure that that's the answer to the question. I was trying to get at the idea that we're 
although we are assessing whether the legislation is clearly unconstitutional, doesn't that ultimately speak to whether the state passed it or whether Parliament passed it at least recklessly or knowingly? Isn't it, can it not be evidence of that? The only way that a, that a judge can determine whether litigation, whether legislation is constitutional is to assess the arguments and evidence put before them. Yeah. That's how determinations of constitutional validity are made, and that's how justifications under Section 1 are made. So in our submission, our test uh, encapsulates what's done every day in constitutional litigation in Canada. Subject to any questions, those are Ontario submissions. Thank you very much. Maître Hainaut. Monsieur le juge en chef, mesdames et messieurs les juges, ce dossier constitue une opportunité pour la Cour, selon le procureur général du Québec, de s'intéresser à la question de l'équilibre des pouvoirs étatiques dans la démocratie constitutionnelle canadienne et aux limites du contrôle judiciaire de la constitutionnalité des lois à la lumière de l'architecture constitutionnelle du pays. Il importe d'abord de bien établir le cadre du présent dossier. La source de la violation de la Constitution en l'espèce concerne exclusivement l'exercice du pouvoir législatif par l'entremise de l'adoption de dispositions législatives. Étant donné les représentations qui ont déjà été effectuées par mes consoeurs et confrères, et afin d'éviter les répétitions, le procureur général du Québec entend se concentrer sur certains aspects spécifiques de son mémoire. D'abord, le présent dossier implique nécessairement d'interpréter les termes utilisés par le paragraphe 24.1 de la Charte canadienne, lesquels font référence à la réparation qui est convenable et juste eu égard aux circonstances. Selon la, la Cour qui a étayé cette position, notamment dans l'arrêt Doucet-Boudreau, le caractère convenable et juste d'une réparation potentielle doit s'apprécier à la lumière de certains facteurs généraux. La réparation doit ainsi permettre notre, notamment de défendre utilement les droits et libertés du, de du demandeur, certes, mais également faire appel à des moyens légitimes dans le cadre de notre démocratie constitutionnelle, défendre le droit en cause, tout en mettant, et nous incitons également ici, à contribution le rôle et les pouvoirs d'un tribunal et à être équitable pour la partie visée par l'ordonnance. Par l'examen de ces facteurs, la Cour a adopté une approche qui nécessite, dans la détermination d'une réparation potentielle, que les tribunaux mettent en équilibre, certes, la nécessité de protéger de manière effective les droits fondamentaux, d'une part, mais aussi, d'autre part, que la réparation s'inscrive dans le respect de l'architecture constitutionnelle du pays et notamment de la séparation des pouvoirs et des fonctions entre le législatif, l'exécutif et le judiciaire et des rapports qui existent entre ces trois pouvoirs. Il nous semble, à la lumière de ces principes, tels qu'interprétés notamment dans la Rémi-Kissou par la Cour, que toute réparation qui serait accordée sous le paragraphe 24.1 de la Charte canadienne qui impliquerait de s'intéresser à la manière même dont s'est exercé le pouvoir législatif ou à la conduite des membres du Parlement et à superviser cet exercice du pouvoir législatif dépasserait le rôle qui est dévolu par la Constitution aux tribunaux dans le contrôle de la constitutionnalité Maître, des Maître Reynaud, euh, dans oui. Mekissou, le, le point à l'étige était de, de connaître l'étendue de l'obligation de consulter dans le processus euh, législatif. Ce n'était pas la question de responsabilité pour avoir adopté euh, une législation clairement ou abusive ou clairement illégale ou euh, 
de mauvaise foi ou euh, utiliser les mots que vous voulez. Là. On parle de deux situations différentes. Là. À notre avis, il y a quand même certains principes qui se dégagent de l'arrêt Mikissou qui, qui nous apparaissent éclairants. Euh, notamment dans l'arrêt Mikissou, à cet égard, là, on va nous dire que euh, le, le contrôle judiciaire de la constitutionnalité des lois, euh, euh, en fait, et, et je, 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 je vous réponds plus amplement, ça, ça ne sera pas très long, mais que le, le contrôle judiciaire de la constitutionnalité des lois euh, s'intéresse d'abord euh, à la résultante de l'exercice du pouvoir législatif, n'est-ce pas, qui est la loi elle-même et à ses effets. Euh, que, euh, autrement dit, en fait, que lorsque la, la, la Cour nous indique dans la Rémi-Kissou que les tribunaux interviennent lorsqu'une loi est adoptée et non avant. Donc, euh, à notre avis, euh, tout ce qui, de, de, de ces éléments qui s'appuient notamment sur le principe de la souveraineté parlementaire, tout ce qui impliquerait euh, pour les tribunaux de scruter non pas euh, la résultante de l'exercice euh, législatif, qui est la loi elle-même, mais bien la manière dont les membres des parlements se sont comportés, leur conduite euh, dans euh, on, on s'entend là-dessus, on s'entend là-dessus, mais souvent la conduite euh, va mener à l'adoption de la loi, et c'est la loi telle qu'adoptée qui fait l'objet de, euh, de la revue. Ce n'est pas la manière... Ce n'est pas nécessairement le comportement des, des, des élus. On parle d'une loi clairement inconstitutionnelle. Alors, quand vous parlez d'équilibre tantôt entre le judiciaire et le législatif et l'exécutif, on parle, on parle de ça. On parle à cause, à cause de notre structure constitutionnelle au Canada. Le pouvoir judiciaire euh, a l'autorité de déclarer inconstitutionnel et de, de contrôler la légalité de l'action de l'exécutif et du législatif. À partir du moment où la loi est adoptée et qu'elle est appliquée effectivement par le pouvoir euh, exécutif, euh, nous en sommes euh, tout à fait, euh, nous sommes tout à fait euh, d'accord. Euh, ce qui euh, pose problème dans euh, les termes utilisés dans l'arrêt Mackin, c'est qu'il s'intéresse bel et bien, et dans la, la réparation même que constituent les dommages et intérêts, dans un contexte où on chercherait à lever l'immunité dont il est question dans l'arrêt Mackin, c'est que ces termes s'intéressent bel et bien à la conduite des membres du Parlement. Ils s'intéressent à leur Maître Hainaut, oui. que, que dites-vous en réponse à, à la question du juge en chef, mais et plus largement de la position de l'intimé, qui, qui, qui dirait que, que la, la conception de la souveraineté parlementaire que vous mettez de l'avant est en porte-à-faux avec une, un constitutionnalisme bien canadien, qui a vu le jour en 1982 et qui change la donne, qui explique le, les limites à, à l'absolutisme que vous, que vous mettez de l'avant. Bien, nous, nous reprendrions certaines des... En fait, ce, ce qui nous semble, c'est qu'il y a une certaine chasse gardée qui appartient au législateur et au Parlement dans son pouvoir d'action. Et tout ce qui implique de scruter, en fait, lorsqu'on regarde justement certains principes qui émanent de la Rémi-Kissou, mais également certains principes qui ont été développés auparavant, tout ce qui, qui nous amènerait à devoir scruter cet exercice-là euh, entrerait finalement dans cette euh, forme de chasse gardée qui est véritablement ce qui se passe dans la manière dont euh, le, le, le Parlement agit. Mais juste pour faire suite euh, à, à ce que mon collègue a dit avec... Euh... La question avec laquelle je suis entièrement d'accord, il vous disait qu'il y avait un changement dans la, la mosaïque constitutionnelle au Canada en, depuis 1982. 
Mais, et, et donc, effectivement, je, je, justement, à cause de l'équilibre, justement, que vous, auquel vous référiez, cette, cette nouvelle mosaïque-là demande un contrôle de la légalité des actions de l'État. Mais même avant, je pourrais vous dire que dans l'arrêt Roccarelli qui a conduit Plessis, même avant la Charte des droits, il y avait un certain contrôle des tribunaux sur la légalité ou l'abus des actions du gouvernement, que ce soit le législatif ou l'exécutif. Ce n'est pas nouveau comme concept, là. C'est pour éviter de, de, de devenir dans une, une société tyrannique et totalitaire. Non, absolument. Et, mais en fait, ce que, ce que, la réponse à cette question, en fait, ce que je vous dirais, c'est que lorsqu'effectivement une, une loi est inconstitutionnelle, les tribunaux, la Cour suprême nous rappelle de, 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 depuis justement 1982, que euh, le recours principal, le recours qui est approprié pour contester la constitutionnalité d'une loi, c'est un recours sous 52 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982. Et euh, lorsque, euh, lorsqu'on regarde l'étendue des réparations qui sont euh, possibles en vertu euh, du paragraphe 52.1 de la loi constitutionnelle euh, de 1982, euh, on, on se rend compte, en fait, que ces réparations-là ont été développées euh, non pas euh, en, afin de s'interroger sur la manière dont le processus législatif s'est déroulé, sur la bonne conduite ou non du législateur, euh, ou sur l'opportunité politique des décisions législatives, mais bien à déterminer l'étendue de l'incompatibilité de la loi et de la Constitution de mais... façon à, recevoir, à concevoir des réparations adoptées et d'en supprimer les vices constitutionnels. Et... Euh, si, si je peux me permettre, peut-être pour compléter cette réponse, nous ne sommes pas en train d'affirmer que le paragraphe euh, 24.1 de la Charte canadienne ne peut en aucun cas intervenir lorsque la source unique de la violation à la Constitution est une disposition législative. Les, la Cour suprême a reconnu dans les dernières années, effectivement, que le paragraphe 24.1 pouvait, dans un tel contexte, euh, intervenir. Toutefois, c'est intéressant, cependant, de s'interroger, justement, depuis 1982, sur la manière, jusqu'à présent, que la Cour s'est appuyée sur le paragraphe 24.1 pour accorder une réparation supplémentaire à celle de 52. Et lorsqu'on regarde de quelle manière ça s'est effectué, bien, on se rend compte que ça a toujours été dans un contexte où on a voulu que le paragraphe 24.1 joue un rôle complémentaire au paragraphe 52.1 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982. Dans l'arrêt Al-Bashir, notamment pour citer la Cour, on nous mentionne qu'on qu qu peut effectivement utiliser le paragraphe 24.1 dans certaines situations en permettant donc d'accorder des réparations individuelles afin d'atténuer les effets de la règle de droit qui a fait l'objet d'une réparation en vertu du paragraphe 52.1 ou d'actes commis en vertu de celle-ci. Donc, l'exemple typique, c'est la réparation sous 52 qui serait sous la forme euh, d'une déclaration d'invalidité qui serait suspendue, donc dont l'effet serait suspendu. Euh, durant la période de suspension, il y a bel et bien des réparations qui s'offrent sous 24.1, puisque ces réparations s'attardent, encore une fois, je le répète, non pas sur la manière dont le processus législatif s'est déroulé, mais bien sur les effets de la règle de droit et la nécessité, malgré la réparation sous 52, d'atténuer certains effets subsistants de la règle de droit. Donc, jusqu'à présent, il nous semble que la Cour suprême, c'est de cette manière qu'elle a fait intervenir le paragraphe 24.1 de la Charte canadienne. Vous utilisez ce possible remède d'avoir une suspension de la déclaration d'invalidité ou une exemption individuelle pour supporter votre argument à l'effet qu'il devrait y avoir immunité absolue? 
par rapport à un recours sous 20, en dommage sous 24.1? Bien, c'est-à-dire que pour nous, effectivement, une réparation en dommage et intérêt, elle n'implique pas, et merci effectivement de la question, c'est le complément qui, qui me manquait, mais euh, elle n'implique pas une réparation en dommage et intérêt de compléter une réparation en vertu de 52.1 pour atténuer les effets d'une déclaration, par exemple, ou de la disposition qui perdurerait. Une réparation sous forme de dommage et intérêt, elle, euh, elle, elle vise nécessairement à s'intéresser à la conduite même du, des acteurs du processus législatif. Elle vise à s'intéresser à superviser de quelle manière le tout a été exercé, et notamment les notions de mauvaise foi euh, font appel justement à un tel examen euh, de la conduite des membres du pouvoir euh, législatif. Et euh, votre teinte expirée. Oui. Je vous demanderai de conclure, votre teinte expirée. Parfait. Donc, euh, c'est effectivement donc de cette manière qu'on pense que les interactions entre le paragraphe 24.1 et l'article 52.1 de, de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982 doivent être envisagées. Donc, je, je, je conclue effectivement là-dessus. Merci. Merci, Madino. Euh, Ms. Samantha Paris. Thank you. Uh, good morning, uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. My name is Samantha Paris, and I represent the Attorney General of Nova Scotia as intervener in this appeal, which concerns whether it could ever be just and appropriate for a court uh, to order damages pursuant to Section 24.1 of the Charter when Section 52 is also available as a remedy. Nova Scotia submits that a just and appropriate remedy, remedy ordered by a court pursuant to the Charter must respect the relationships with and distinctions between the three branches of government. A Charter remedy, which does not respect the separation of powers, will intrude upon the role of the legislature. Undue intrusion from one branch into another upsets the delicate balance required for the effective cooperation between the judiciary, the executive, and the legislature. This court has long recognized uh, there is an immunity of the Crown from liability for damages arising from its exercise of legislative functions. This court has also recognized that this immunity is crucial to the maintenance of the independence of Parliament and of the legislatures, as it prevents undue judicial interference with the legislative process. This court's decision in Mackin articulates the prohibition on an award for damages when Section 52 is engaged. This prohibition, though, cannot be overcome simply by the fact that the legislation was subsequently declared invalid and one that requires evidence that the legislature acted contrary to the general principles of public law. This prohibition strikes an appropriate balance between the protection of constitutional rights and the need for effective government. Or in other words, Mackin defines when damages could be just and appropriate, a just and appropriate remedy. Nova Scotia submits that reserving a very narrow set of circumstances in which damages could be available, along with a declaration of invalidity, as articulated in Mackin, is appropriate within our constitutional framework. Mackin, coupled with this court's recent decision in Miccosu Cree, which expresses the necessity of upholding parliamentary and legislative privileges, provides a framework for accountability without je jeopardizing the uh, integrity of the legislative process. As such, 
Compensatory damages pursuant to Section 24.1 when Section 52 is engaged should remain to be rarely available and only in those cases where there is evidence that the legislature acted contrary to the principles of public law. Barring any questions, those are my submissions. Rose Campbell. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. New Brunswick has two submissions to make on this appeal. First, pre-enactment conduct of the legislative branch should not be subject to, to judicial review. It necessarily follows that Section 24 has no application in the current matter. Secondly, we would submit that if this court does wish to engage in a review of pre-enactment legislative conduct, we would suggest that the framework developed by this court in Warden Vancouver is not sufficiently responsive. To our first submission, Parliamentary privilege has been a part of the Canadian constitutional framework since 1867 and enjoys the same weight and status of the Charter itself. Actually, 1758 in the case of Nova Scotia. Thank you. Thank you, Justice Rowe, duly noted. This court has defined it as the sum of privileges, immunities, and powers enjoyed by the Senate, the House of Commons, and provincial legislative assemblies and by each member individually, without which they could not discharge their functions. Parliamentary privilege ensures that the other branches of government, namely the executive and the judiciary, respect the independence of the legislative branch. This independence cannot be sustained if either of the other branches are able to define or reduce these privileges. Parliamentary pr privilege is of course closely related to the concepts of parliamentary sovereignty and separation of powers. These three concepts work together to establish and maintain a functional democratic government. The requested remedy in this appeal would require the judiciary to impermissibly peek behind the curtain of parliamentary privilege and would erode the ability of parliamentarians to discharge their legislative functions. Um, I'm just wondering whether we're getting a, a bit ahead of ourselves in, in thinking about this particular case, because in this case, the particulars that were requested were, you know, essentially how far... Sorry, Justice, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Um, I can hear you very faintly. All right. Well, I'll reserve my question uh, for uh, later if we can get this sorted. Thank you. It's fine. Sorry, sorry about that, Justice. I, I'm, I'm, I was not able to hear your question. Um, I'll continue with my submissions and perhaps, yes. Are you able to um, hear us? I can hear you, yes. Because we could hear Justice we could hear, Morrow. Yeah. No, I, I'm not sure I could hear her very faintly, but I, I couldn't actually um, make out her, her question. Well, how about I, I'll transmit very quickly to a member of the panel who might just sure. pose it. And I, I'm just wondering whether in this particular case, I'm not sure that the allegation was that they needed to go behind the legislation into parliamentary privilege because the legislation itself um, prevented a particular opportunity for this um, uh, applicant or this plaintiff um, because of its retroactive application. So I just am curious as to whether or not you're saying that in no case can there be a compensatory award coupled with 52-1 uh, declaration where uh, legislation is declared unconstitutional. So I, 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 I think I heard most of that um, sufficiently to answer. I will do, um, I, I will 
attempt to answer what I believe was your question in terms of looking at the availability of compensatory and uh, the coupling of Section 24 and 52 damages, if, if that was, if that is correct. Um, you know, it, it's interesting in this case that the respondent has requested both Section 24 and 52 remedies, and 52 was conceded, and so now the issue becomes the availability of damages pursuant to Section 24. Um, I, I'd submit that, you know, one issue with the requested remedy in this case is and it, it doesn't exactly fit with the facts um, in Ferguson because, of course, in Ferguson, it was a standalone remedy that was requested. But when we look generally at the different purposes of Section 52 and 24, in a sense, you know, 52 already occupies the field, if I can borrow some language from Division of Powers in terms of the, the remedy for unconstitutional legislation. And I think that um, one issue with the remedy in this case is perhaps the possibility that if if standalone Section 24 damages could be awarded um, as a standalone remedy to cure the effects of unconstitutional legislation without, without any sort of um, incidental um, discretionary government action, I, I think there's a real consideration that that could, um, as this court in Ferguson uh, mentioned, that it could disincentivize litigants from bringing Section 52 claims and the, um, the, the fears that these unconstitutional law would remain on the books. What would be the purpose of Section 52 if we can address this basically through Section 24? Um, and it, it is, this is actually a nice, um, a nice way for me to uh, segue into um, the second part of my, sorry, this, the, the second part of my first submission, but really is looking at the different functions of Section 24 and 52. Section 52 provides remedies for laws that violate the Charter, whereas Section 24 provides remedies to cure unconstitutional discretionary action. Um, Section 52 is, of course, a systemic remedy as opposed to a personal remedy. It operates for the benefit of everyone who would otherwise be subject to a violative law. And by contrast, Section 24 is a personal remedy. Uh -huh, except if you roll it up into a class action where the damages could be very enticing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, a personal remedy which flows from the conduct of unconstitutional discretionary government, um, which acts to correct unconstitutional discretionary state action committed under constitutionally compliant um, legislation. And it is certainly New Brunswick's position that as parliamentary privilege precludes any judicial scrutiny of the, of the legislative process, and well, I, if, I take if your point, I can, I'm um, sorry Justice to, uh, Moreau, in terms of... I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt at this time. I think that Justice Moreau's question was dealing with the fact that, in this case, the, the nature, because the legislation was retroactive, and that created, or allegedly created, problem for Mr. Power. So it's not so much the, the behavior or the attitude or what happened with the members of Parliament that is an issue, but... Uh, the simple existence of the nature, the retroactive nature of the legislatures. You don't need to look at, uh, uh, you know, how they, how they processed or how they adopted the legislation. 
Absolutely, and, um, Chief Justice, thank you. And that would certainly inform our position that Section 52 is the appropriate remedy in this case. The, the, all of the, the harms that flowed to uh, Mr. Power certainly stemmed from the legislation itself. Um, I'll move very quickly. I, I, I'm mindful of my time, uh, but I will briefly touch upon our second ground, is that if this court does wish to consider the availability of damages for the passage of legislation that is later found to be unconstitutional, we would raise a few issues for this court's consideration in terms of the framework suggested by some of the other parties. Um, and we would, um, you know, it has been suggested, um, and I think it's a live issue on this panel in terms of the uh, the ward framework and, and I'll say first of all that it's certainly we do not believe that ward needs to be revisited um, I think this the the distinct nature in which the facts in ward arose are sufficient to distinguish it from the, the current case um, but when it is suggested suggested that the issues of parliamentary privilege separation of powers and parliamentary sovereignty can be sufficiently canvassed in the third stage of the ward analysis, the, the countervailing consideration step of the test, we'd reiterate the importance of these principles and suggest that they either have to be determinative of the analysis, or at the very least, they should figure more prominently in the analysis, more so than it does in ward, where they are buried in the third stage of a test that was perhaps not designed in consideration of the democratic process of lawmaking. Um, if we look at the context in Ward was created, uh, it was developed for a specific purpose, namely to provide a remedy for those who have suffered as a result of discretionary unconstitutional government action. It does not contemplate the enactment of unconstitutional legislation, and nor is it structured can to I, do so. Can I ask you to help me, though, on that point, because... Um, Chief Justice McLaughlin specifically refers to um, Mackin um, yes. under, the th under the good governance uh, uh, part of the test and explains how good governance um, is, is an important consideration as illustrated in Mackin. That's true, uh, Justice, absolutely. Um, and if, if I maybe um, indulge to, to answer your question, um, in terms of some of the issues in Ward, uh, or I beg your pardon, in Mackin, um, and certainly it is our position that Mackin should be revisited um, with a view to reconciling some of these competing principles. Um, this was, of course, a case involving judicial independence. Um, the remedies portion of this case was incidental only and did not form the bulk of the court's analysis. Um, and in this sense, um, you know, much of the jurisprudence that is referenced in Mackin has evolved, um, you know, so for example, the awarding of Section 24 and 52 remedies in tandem has been further explored by this court. Um, I'm mindful of the time, Justice, and I will thank you. Subject to any questions, I will thank you for the time. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Charles Murray. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, having heard the conversation so far this morning, I can indicate that most of Manitoba's submissions and most of our factum uh, are located really within the input section of the question that was identified by Justice Jamal and not the output section. And I think that those largely have been covered in the submissions you've heard so far. I would simply maintain that legislators need the room to fulfill their constitutional function without undue scrutiny or intrusion uh, from courts. They need to be able to fearlessly uh, and without interference 
create their legislation. And this can mean sometimes creating new law that always has the potential to violate charter rights, or it can mean responding to situations where there has been a, a finding of unconstitutionality and trying to remake the law and advance the policy in a creative way. So this is the dialogue that happens between the courts and the legislatures. And when considering whether there's a threshold of something that's simply clearly wrong, that's a point where the dialogue ends, or perhaps a point where it never begins. That's a court saying to the legislature, you should have known better in enacting this law, and here's whatever sanction or remedy flows from that. In those cases, my submission would be, if that is the standard, it should be so clear that the intent of the legislature in enacting it or the individual uh, motivations underlying it are irrelevant to the question. If we look at <clears throat> the standards that are proposed by Ontario and BC, if the court uh, ultimately adopts those, one submission that I would leave you with, one caution is with the no credible argument standard. The biggest problem that I see with adopting that into the legal test is this is an area where there's always some real uncertainty and sometimes we see surprising results. And I'd ask the court to think about the situation where everybody, maybe including the Attorney General, thinks there's no credible argument to support a piece of legislation, but in fact there is and they're wrong about that. The example that, that I would give you is the, the Federal Genetic Non-Discrimination Act that this court recently within the last few years looked at. There was a situation where it began as a private member's bill in parliament. The government of the day, including the Attorney General, thought it was unconstitutional. Now granted this was a division of powers case, but I think the analogy still holds. It could well have been a charter case. Everyone, provincial attorneys general, thought this was unconstitutional, and yet Parliament passed it anyways. And I think that's an example of Parliament perhaps legislating fearlessly and independently. Mr. Murray, um, and, uh, yes. I think we on this bench are well aware that sometimes these uh, decisions are made 5-4, and it's not always a clear-cut or predictable result for uh, the attorney general or for Parliament. We're, we're, we're keenly aware of that. But isn't that why the threshold is so high? If it's clearly wrong, and, and Justice Karakatsanis, I think that that's my point. The threshold has to be so high that it doesn't admit any relevance of the motives or um, uh, 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 the, the intentions of Parliament behind it. It has to be so wrong that it's wrong on its face. And if the theory of liability is that it's so wrong and it caused harm to an individual, therefore damages ought to be recovered. It doesn't seem to me that that can rest on the, the competence of the government's defense of that. And that seems to be what, what some of the interveners would have injected into the test is in court, how well does the attorney general defend it? If it's um, uh, not a good enough argument, then liability attaches. Perhaps if it's a credible defense, liability doesn't attach. Um, I see that as being problematic. And particularly, Justice Karakatsanis, as, as you noted, there's this constant context of growth. And uh, decisions that are made in one decade are sometimes reversed in another decade as things change. It's known you know, as the living this, tree. The, the living tree continues to grow, and we see it grow. Uh, and who knows where it's going to grow. And I think in that context, um, the, the principle that courts and parliament should respect each other's legitimate spheres of activity and the conduct of public affairs holds, and that if charter damages are to be found, the standard should be something that is 
objectively uh, discernible. Those are my submissions. Is it fair to say, uh, Mr. Murray, that intention can be relevant for the meaning of the law, but really when we're looking at 24-1, the focus is on the harm to the individual. So it's the effect of the uh, law on the individual. And it may be that the intention uh, can be relevant, perhaps tangentially as part of the inquiry, but the focus is on the effect, uh, the impact of the law on the individual, what, what, it, what injury it causes and uh, what harm it occasions rather than uh, intention as to the meaning of the law, which is quite a different matter. Yes, Justice Dumali, I agree with that. And I think that that theory of liability would go a long way to preserving the autonomy and independence of Parliament and its individual members um, to, to operate within their constitutional space um, in a way that allows them to perform their functions. Mr. Murray, uh, Mr. Murray, I wonder if I could ask you a question about the, the clearly wrong language in, in Macon. Um, so I'm at the paragraph 78, which is a paragraph that just about everybody has cited um, in, these, in this appeal. And I just note that Justice Gontier, when he says of, um, according to a general rule of public law, absent conduct that is clearly wrong in bad faith or uh, or an abuse of power, the courts will not award damages. In the French version of the reasons of Justice Gontier, the expression clearly wrong is rendered comportement clairement fautif. The word fautif evoking a, a standard that seems to be a different one than the wrongness that we've been discussing so far. And this is echoed later in the, in the reasons where in paragraph 82, he says, this time in English, um, I do not find any evidence that might suggest the government of New Brunswick acted negligently in bad faith or by abusing powers. And he, he repeats, and in, and in French, um, it's uh, agi negligemment, and uh, the word negligent is is repeated in 83. And I just wondered if you had any comment on that as part of the standard that you've been speaking to. I suppose, uh, Justice, that, that I fall sometimes into the trap of reading the law in one language at my own peril. So I can't comment on the differences between perhaps the French and the English. But what I would note about the use of negligence, and, and I recall reading this in some of my friends' um, factums, and I can't recall which one, that's addressed in a number of federal court decisions that have uh, determined that the negligence standard wasn't uh, appropriate for, for various reasons. Uh, I think that in, in my submission, that would fall into the, the category of the theory of liability, not depending necessarily on the actions or motivations of Parliament in enacting the law, but in looking at, at what it actually enacted and what that did to an individual. Thank you very much. Thank Mr. you. I Mr. Isaac. Chief Justice, Justices, our starting position is that we support Canada and its position that there should be an absolute immunity. Given the submissions that the court has already heard on that issue, I will go straight to our alternative position, 
which is that if the court is not inclined to draw that bright line, that rather than merely confirm the language of bad faith, negligence, or abuse of power from Mackin without refinement, the court should take this opportunity to articulate a clear, justiciable standard focused on what constitutes a legislative act that is clearly wrong, language which is drawn directly from Mackin, and which would allow the court to bridge the gap, as Justice Jamal put it, but without trenching on parliamentary sovereignty, privilege, or the separation of powers any more than necessary. To that end, and like Ontario, we say that if charter damages are to be awarded, it should only be where a legislature enacts an unconstitutional law in the face of binding precedent amounting to a constitutional prohibition without invoking the notwithstanding clause if applicable, and where government is unable to offer a credible legal argument to distinguish that precedent. Now, although such a standard would not entirely resolve the, the constitutional issues that are associated with impugning legislative conduct, it would minimize them. It would permit charter damages in those rare cases where the enactment of an unconstitutional law was clearly wrong, but without requiring litigants or the courts to go further than necessary in a grasping, and we say corrosive effort, to establish or adjudicate allegations of factual wrongdoing within the legislative process itself. We say that going even one step beyond such a proposed standard would invite significantly greater risks to the constitutional principles that are implicated in this appeal, but with no corresponding benefit. Can, can, now, I I ask you, can I ask you, when you say in the face of directly uh, binding precedent, that would not include um, findings of unconstitutionality by courts of appeal in other provinces, or would it? I just want to understand your position. It, it would not, uh, just okay. it would, it would, it would be based on Supreme Court of Canada judgments or Court of Appeal judgments within the province right. that would be uh, enacting that legislation. And I, I also have perhaps I, my my friend from Ontario has addressed the the standard in similar terms. There is one nuance I might add to it, which arises out of a question that Justice Jamal had about what constitutes a binding precedent, and. I would submit that there are two broad types of precedent that may be engaged here. One is a, a case that's directly on point, a, a second look type of instance uh, where a specific law has been overruled and then the legislature passes effectively the same law but with nothing well, what to about a Excuse me, this yes. is Justice Martin. What about a trial decision from another province that says something is clearly unconstitutional, the same piece of legislation? Um, you're saying that's not a binding authority, that that's just persuasive. Correct. And that can be uh, ignored. Correct. Well, I, I wouldn't put it perhaps as ignored, but at least for the purposes of the test, I think we need to go beyond a risk analysis. It would be need to be something that that raised to the level of removing any doubt that something is is uh, is is or is not constitutional. And I think there are, but the, the notion that it needs to be a single precedent that's identical is, I think, not entirely accurate in our submission. It could also be a constellation of cases, perhaps grounded very deeply in our law, that together are so well established that it becomes, to quote Mackin again. Uh, part of the established and indisputable laws that, that are, define our constitutional rights of individuals. And, Mr. and I would, uh, yes, Justice Moore. Sorry, I was going to go back to Justice Kazira's question and the idea, the language that Justice Gontier used, uh, which connoted uh, an idea of fault in French. Um, 
Is there a distinction between something that is clearly unconstitutional and clearly wrong? Because it seems to me often when courts declare legislation unconstitutional, they say this is clearly unconstitutional. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's now a claim. We're now sort of putting a line in for a claim in damages. So again, it's this idea of gap. Something can be clear, clearly unconstitutional, but in order to ground an action under 24.1, it needs to be manifestly sort of well beyond uh, constitutional norms in order for, the, for, for, for it to be actionable. So it does seem to me a distinction between clearly unconstitutional and clearly wrong. I think that there is, although in terms of the test that we've proposed, that could be ascertained by asking whether or not the, the legislation that was passed was so clearly in the face of binding precedent, again, whether it's a single case or a constellation of cases, uh, that it manifests a knowing disregard and repudiate, repudiation of charter rights. And I, in that constellation example, I would perhaps put something along the lines of waterboarding. We do not need a case on waterboarding to, to know that it is repugnant uh, to our constitutional order. So I think that there are uh, several ways to look at it. One would be a recent case on all fours, and another would be something that is so well-rooted that it could not credibly be argued uh, that it is consistent with our constitutional order. So that's one refinement that I, that, that I would add to the submissions of my friend so, from Ontario. Wouldn't that be something like abuse of power or bad faith? in what you just described? Possibly, Justice Moreau, but in my submission, there is vanishing little benefit that comes by trying to put too much reliance on the language of bad faith uh, and abuse of power in terms of what the test does. I think that the, in our submission is, is that the, the credible legal argument standard provides a very reliable proxy for a gross legislative disregard of established constitutional principles. And, and also, and doesn't, about, doesn't bad faith this, get you Mr. into Roger, the what business? What about colorable legislation? What about legislation that um, is, is put forward in one package, but its real design is to do something nefarious, and that that might not be captured in the same way by your test than would, say, a bad faith uh, measure or, or stand? Yes, Justice Kassir, I, I had a, suggested as part of my roadmap that I would be commenting on the imperfections of the test. And one of those is that it is, to some extent, an abstraction. It asks what can be said for the legislation by lawyers in court in substitution for what was actually sought, uh, thought, uh, said, or intended by legislators at the time. Uh, but in our submission, that's a, that's a necessary abstraction in order to avoid the constitutionally fraught issues that the appellant and other interveners have, have identified. And uh, little is, is, is lost by not going down that path. Well, um, I... And a lot is avoided in terms of the, the practical challenges of how to adjudicate factual, factually questions of bad faith uh, no, or abuse isn't, of power isn't, within isn't the, the whole, process. as soon as you get into bad faith, you have to get into the, the, the intentions and the motivations of individuals. Do you not? And therefore, it, by necessary implication, do you not have to have the testimony of individuals who are involved in the process? What did you mean when you said X? What were you aware of when you said X? What were you seeking to do when you voted in this way? Yes, Justice. 
I, I, I entirely endorse that concern. I think those issues are intractable. If you engage in a factual inquiry, it's inevitable that you're going to require evidence on precisely that well, point. And I would add perhaps that when one looks at the impact of a factual inquiry into questions of bad faith, uh, such as this proposes, it, it, that isn't assessed by what is the minimal thing that a plaintiff could do to establish their claim, Can I ask which is you? how the respondent has put it. it yeah. it's, it's about what they're entitled to do, uh, and it's what the, def the defendant is entitled to do and required to do in order to defend it. So I think the, the impact is, is far broader than just that minimalist view. So can I ask you this, though, because assuming for a moment that we can recognize that cross-examining uh, a member of parliament or, um, would, would raise serious parliamentary privilege concerns, I, I'm, again, I'm looking at the passages quoted to you by um, Justice Kassir, and in addition to negligence, which I, I know has caused some concern over the years, the reference is also to willful blindness, and I'm looking uh, and I, you, you made the statement that it would be a knowing repudiation. Macon makes the statement about willful blindness. And I guess my question to you is that clearly wrong probably can do most of the work in most cases, but can we really set aside improper purpose? Can we really set aside the idea that that government can be held to account for improper purpose, knowing repudiation, reckless disregard? In my submission, Justice, we need to. Are we leaving something on the table? Possibly, conceivably. The, the, the standard that we provo provided is a, is a proxy, but we say that it's a proxy that would capture virtually everything that's contemplated in Macon. And that the, the benefit that would come, hypothetical benefit, of, of, of leaping o leaving open a factual inquiry uh, is, is so constitutionally fraught it encumbers the analysis so much and has so many uh, constitutional issues associated with it um, that the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It's, it's, a, it's a very challenging thing to go down that path. And in my submission, there isn't a, an alternative place to put safeguards. There isn't another place at which one can constrain the inquiry that is properly respectful of the constitutional balance uh, that's necessary. Thank you very much. Teodora Litovsky. Good, <clears throat> good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here for the Attorney General of Saskatchewan on this interesting and important question. My remarks today will proceed in two parts. Given the submissions you've heard today and the questioning of counsel, I intend to draw two broad concepts out of our factum. First, I'll discuss the concept of charter dialogue and how the institutional balance which underlies judicial review in the charter era can be impacted by damages for primary legislation. This tugs at the clearly wrong standard or other standards from Macon and why if the court maintains some objective standard, it should be an exceptionally high one. Second, I want to discuss the conflicting and overlapping roles of the attorneys general, particularly in the litigation process and the challenges of stick handling a case for charter damages through the pretrial process and ultimately to trial on the issue. I hope this touches on why the bad faith or abusive process elements of Macon are especially problematic. 
So I'll begin by discussing the metaphor of charter dialogue. I think this is an extremely apt metaphor to map this question onto. It helps show some, uh, but not all, of the pitfalls that charter damages for primary legislation can cause. After 40 years of charter practice, the judicial review of statutes under the charter is a familiar and fairly orderly affair. A law is passed by the legislature and then challenged and reviewed by a court. If, after litigation, a law is declared to be unconstitutional, in, in whole or part, the legislature now has a choice. Generally, it responds with an amended law, which achieves the very same or similar policy as the first one, with such changes as, as may be required to address the court's concerns, sometimes to a greater and sometimes to a lesser extent. The courts then take a look at the, at the new statute. If the law doesn't pass muster, this process repeats and more changes are made. And this continues until an equilibrium is achieved, where both the courts and the legislature are content, or perhaps more accurately content enough, with, with the policy outcome. In, in Canada, courts acting under Section 52 of the Constitution Act, 1982, exercise a fairly potent power of judicial review. A statute can be nullified, but not outright repealed by judicial fiat. This iterative process that I've described today, which is charter dialogue, it, it feathers the edges of that strong form system of judicial review, and it improves the democratic legitimacy of the policy outcomes that are ultimately achieved. This process always gives the court the last word on the constitutionality of a statute outside of Section 33 of the Charter, but it means that the legislature always has the fullest spectrum of policy options open to it to craft solutions that reflect the diverse interests at stake. By engaging in this process, the court guides the legislature towards more perfect Charter compliance, and the principle of democratic accountability is served and the democratic process is enhanced. This, this dialogue arises in large part because of inherently, um, how inherently uncertain charter litigation tends to be, particularly given the way that section one operates in, in the matrix of individual cases and over time. So if we overlay the charter damages framework on top of this iterative process, it certainly makes the legislature much more directly accountable to the courts for better or worse. And moreover, legislatures and individual lawmakers aware that the statute that they're crafting is likely to return to court on a damages question will rightly, will rightly be concerned about what they need to do to not, to not only repair the constitutional defect, but to do so in a way that surmounts whatever damages threshold is, is pertinent. Um, the chilling effect that many interveners have identified comes very much to the forefront in these second look cases. So if the court leaves some objective standard in place, it needs to be a high one, and it needs to account for the sensitivities of that dialogue, and that sometimes um, legislation will skirt very close to existing case law, and that's by design. Um, from a practical perspective, this dialogue also means that members of the assembly, aware that they're part of the dialogic process, have an incentive to be less forthcoming during debates and to tailor their comments in the assembly to reduce the chance that their evidence will be used against the Crown or even themselves in subsequent litigation. And perhaps even more subtly, members of the assembly, particularly those that control committees, may be less willing to entertain um, adverse or critical witnesses or evidence as part of the lawmaking process itself. So if there is some objective standard applied to the wrongness of legislation, it should be informed by standards or principles that are as, as extrinsic to the lawmaking process as possible. Otherwise, those litigation incentives and the litigation mindset can seep into the work of the assembly and compromise its role as the grand inquest.
But can I just ask you this question here? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but there is an independent obligation on, on the state and all state actors to try to comply with the charter, that, right? So they, it's not like you're talking about strategic maneuvering um, and chilling effects, but that might be more forceful an argument where they're not a pre-existing obligation to respect the charter in the enactment of legislation. How do they square? I think obviously the legislature has an obligation to abide by the charter. I don't think that's that's much in doubt. Um, the concern that I have is that um, by focusing on so so let me interrupt there. So acknowledging that, wouldn't they in any dialogic kind of concept or or just in taking their responsibility seriously, be careful about what it is they're thinking about and how it is that they're proceeding so that they're not skirting unconstitutionality? What's wrong with, with that? I think the concern is when we think of what the record would be on a judicial review, to use lack of a better word, of, of the statute in question. If the court is confined, as it typically is in charter cases, to evidence in the Hansard um, and for very limited purposes, um, that there's an incentive on in for those that control the proceedings of the House to make sure that the Hansard is fairly clean. And the the um, the whole point of, of, of these privileges is to ensure that the members are free to say what they need to say in the moment. And so these two concepts are, are intention, that the, the liability arising from legislation, as well as the need to say everything that needs to be said about, about the legislation. Um, I'll, I'll move to my second point now. As a few government interveners have alluded to, the Attorney General has a very complex role in our constitutional order. Obviously, she commences prosecutions on behalf of His Majesty and as the Chief Legal Officer of the Crown. She defends statutes passed by the Assembly, including previous administrations, and separately, um, by convention, she's also the Minister of Justice. One of the things that she's clearly not is the Legislative Assembly's lawyer. She's accountable to the House as a member of the Assembly, and as a member, she wields the same privileges as other members, but otherwise, she has no special relationship to that body. And it seems very clear there's no solicitor-client relationship, certainly. Indeed, does not the legislature in each instance have its own law officers who are not members of the Department of Justice? Uh, I can't speak to specifically what um, various assemblies have, but I would say for the most part they do. The Schmidt case, which I reproduced in our condensed book, certainly refers to that at the federal level. Uh, the Attorney General has no special powers at her disposal to sidestep the privileges of the Assembly. Um, the Attorney General has no power to compel or discover documents from members of the House or the Speaker of the House. And she can't compel members to answer questions about their work in the House, in the court, or during discovery. She can't force members to disclose documents arising from their work. And this is all as it should be. As someone who wields the Crown's executive power, particularly the power to prosecute, the Attorney General is exactly who the Assembly's privileges are intended to work against. Um, the business of the House should be protected as much as possible from a bunch of civil service lawyers like me trying to investigate whether a claim for damages against the Crown is well-founded, can be settled, or should go to trial. So charter damages, particularly with bad faith and abuse of process, those other two elements of Mackin, 
will pose strange situations where the attorney general, who's the respondent on the litigation typically, may, in order to defend an action, feel the need to implead the assembly or individual members into the case to get access to documents needed for the conduct of litigation. And in a truly extreme situation to even hang financial liability on bad actors. This obviously careens headlong into the privileges of the House and causes other problems. So to conclude, a charter challenge to a law with charter damages on the table puts the Attorney General between the Assembly and the court in a way that ordinary charter, charter litigation does not. One of the problems identified in Megasucree is that judicial review of the legislative process entangles the courts in lawmaking. And Saskatchewan would add that the adversarial process of litigation delegates a significant portion of that entanglement to the Attorney General, who is no more welcome or equipped to meddle in the Assembly's business than the courts are. I'd like to thank the court for the opportunity to make remarks on this issue today and subject to questions, I'll conclude. Thank you very much. David Cabal. Good morning. Uh, I'll preface my comments by saying I've been suffering from a, a degradation of the audio feed at my end for the last half an hour. Um, so I hope you can hear me. Um, given the court's comments so far, comments and questions so far, I'm not going to restate the arguments made in Alberta's written submissions. Uh, given the close alignment of Alberta's position with that put by, forward by Canada, I can't add anything that wasn't already submitted by Ms. Tellus Langdon, and I certainly cannot meet her advocacy skills. So instead, I'm going to outline a somewhat novel position that was not in Alberta's factum, but was one that I had intended to present as a brief alternative argument today. If the ultimate purpose of charter damages is to vindicate the rights of individuals against the state or government, then arguably it should not matter which branch of the state or government is held responsible for a violation of rights if the ultimate remedial result would be the same for the claimant. To be honest, I was prepared to argue that a damages analysis that is premised upon a, a monolithic state or government against the individual is reductive in that it undermines the separation of the legislative and executive branches. However, in retrospect, and given the comments of Madam Justice Karakasanis, this view might also enable other analytical ways of reaching a satisfactory remedial con conclusion. Alberta submits that it is not the enactment, but the enforcement of an unconstitutional law that violates charter rights. On this basis, the question of charter damages with respect to enactment simply does not arise. The damages analysis is necessarily focused on executive actions in enforcement. The enactment of an unconstitutional law alone is insufficient to violate charter rights. This is demonstrated by the fact that a declaration under Section 52 does not remove an unconstitutional law from the books. That law remains enacted, but it does not violate charter rights because it is not being enforced. Similarly, a law enacted by the legislature must be enforced before it can violate charter rights. This is because the legislature has no independent constitutional ability to implement or enforce any enactment. As stated in Doucette-Boudreau, judicial deference 
ends where constitutional rights begin. And Alberta submits that constitutional rights begin when executive enforcement begins. On this basis, damages may be appropriate in cases where the executive continues to enforce an unconstitutional law in the face of precedent to the contrary. This circumvents a need to, pr to prove bad faith and establishes a threshold for liability. And in, in this respect, I believe that um, my colleague from BC made submissions that uh, Alberta agrees with and um, they answer, uh, I believe they they provide a... Can I, can I uh, ask you yeah. this? Yes. Because if I take your point that it only flows from the execution under an uh, unconstitutional statute, then you're, then it's almost, it's, it's as if you're saying the ward framework, um, you don't look at the different objectives of, of avoiding, of awarding um, damages, including vindication and um, deterrence and all of those other objectives. I think it sounds as if you're saying you have to incur specific damage before you're entitled to charter damages, and that's not what Ward says. If there was an act that stripped someone of their citizenship, but there were no overt acts, they could at least come and take a, uh, make a case for charter damages based on the other objectives that can support, uh, that can make damages appropriate and just, could they not? Whether they're successful or not is a different question. But do you have to actually have the damages that flow from a specific enforcement act? No. Uh, what what I I think the position because I, uh, I took the, I take the position that this view actually serves the purposes of compensation, vindication, and deterrence that are set out in Ward, because. Um, but it's not a prerequisite. The, the point, the point is that it, it is the enforcement. Uh, any act that is in force can violate charter rights. It can violate charter rights, um, as in the case you, uh, you said, there might be an act that strips someone of their citizenship. The fact that act is in force and under the auspices of the executive enables a claim to be made against the government for damage for that. We expect the law to be enforced, uh, whether before, even before it's been declared unconstitutional by a court. I mean, that's that's the, our system operates on that premise. So, um, enforcement of a a law, it seems to me, isn't really the root of the problem because we expect the law to be enforced. It's the the law itself that's the problem. So, is that is that fair? Yes, uh, but in in this case, then with the if a person challenges uh, or makes a claim uh, that, that their viol rights have been violated, then the analysis is whether the executive has enforced or continues to enforce a law in the face of precedent to the contrary. Uh, and like I, uh, as I had stated earlier, the BC submissions with respect to that bar and the, uh, the type of precedent um, would be applicable uh, here. I don't think here. anybody's challenging that. I think the question is, can there be charter damages on the uh, based on the fact that the law is unconstitutional? 
Macon says you need something more, and I think what you're trying to address is what is the something more? But enforcement just isn't working for me as a concept because of the presumption of constitutionality that we presume the law is, is going to be acted on uh, for rule of law purposes, and because, unless, unless I'm reading board wrong, damages is not a prerequisite. I mean, a loss. Uh, co compensation is not a prerequisite. There are other purposes that may justify damages as well. It's a factor, but not a prerequisite. Uh, I understand your um, your concern. I there are situations, for, for example, where um, people challenge laws that have been act in been enacted, but do not, they, they essentially claim a preemptive violation of rights. For example, they might claim that a, that the, the fact of a law being in force has a chilling effect on their expressive rights. And I, I understand that the, the, the executive has a duty to enforce laws and it is entitled to rely upon the presumption of constitutionality. However, that must give way, uh, at least within the analysis, when um, the court undertakes to determine whether the, the, uh, the uh, executive was uh, enforcing a law in the face of clear signs that it was unconstitutional. Mr. Mr. Kamal, just to build on what your your comment, I, I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by enforcement. I mean, let's say a, a statute is enacted but not declared in force. Let's just take that example. That yes, happens sir. quite often. Um, it is enacted. Let's say it's clearly unconstitutional. Let's say it, it's one of those examples. Those those. Uh, examples that Justice Jamal and the Chief Justice gave earlier in the day, um, but it's not enforced because it's not in force. Do, do, how would your analysis proceed there? I'm sorry, sir, if you can actually hear me right now, I'm having a very hard time. I, I didn't hear most of your question. Other than, I, I, I think the premise was, if the law is enacted but not in force, um, can it be challenged? And can people claim, uh, make a claim against the? Well, yeah, it's, if you're not hearing me, that, that's, that's, uh, I'm sorry for that. But it's, it's, I was trying to understand what you mean by enforcement. And so I was giving an example where it wasn't plain to me where you would land on what enforcement means. I'm sorry, sir, I just, I, I cannot hear you right now. All right, and your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Alisa Tompkins. Bonjour, Monsieur le Juge en Chef, Justices. To assist the court in dealing with this appeal, the Speaker of the House makes the following submission. Any exposure of the legislative process to judicial scrutiny, even if indirect, would lead to an impermissible chilling effect on the legislator's ability to proceed fearlessly in its constitutional duties. And I'm going to show that the, 
the proposed application of MACIN does just that. So before getting to that, I, I think it's really important to understand how the MACIN principle was adopted by this court in Ward uh, and subsequently in CSFCB, Conseil Spalel, Francophone de Colombie-Britannique. Let us recall that at paragraph 39 of Ward, uh, this is where the Chief Justice explained, and, and she starts second sentence. This was the situation in Mackin versus New Brunswick, and the case is described as follows, where the claimant sought damages for state conduct pursuant to a valid statute. So that's the concept in which Mackin is being, is being adopted. And Chief Justice goes on to say, the court held that the action must be struck on the grounds that the duly enacted laws should be enforced unless the, until declared invalid, unless the state conduct under the law was clearly wrong in bad faith or an abuse of power. The rule of law would be undermined or governments were deterred from enforcing the law. So here we see that very much this court in Ward was talking about actions under a law about the state, the executive, enforcing the law. So to answer Justice Cassiodel's question, that is what this court was talking about in Ward. We go on to CSFCB, paragraph 168. Last sentence, talking again about such an out, uh, this means that there must be a minimum threshold of gravity, an absent conduct that is clearly wrong in bad faith or an abuse of power Damages must not be awarded under Section 24.1 for acts carried out pursuant to a law that is subsequently declared invalid and of no force and effect. And again, last sentence of paragraph 169, again, only one situation in which the limited immunity applies to Ward was, re the limited immunity applies was recognized in Ward, that of government decisions made under laws. So speaker submits that properly understood Mackin, Mackin does not allow the court, Mackin and the ward framework do not allow the court to award Section 24.1 damages based on the passing of legislation. And again, and this is because the ward framework itself illustrates there will be an impact on the legislative can, process. Can, can I just ask you, so, are you suggesting that ward overturned Mackin? I'm suggesting that it's the manner in which it was adopted within Ward. And when we talk about why there's been no floodgates, that's okay, because sorry. that's Okay, sorry, so you're suggesting that it didn't overturn it, it revised it. That, that is our submission in terms of how it was adopted. And if we go to the actual Ward framework, we see the problem. So let's talk just about the passage of legislation. That's what's at issue here. There are three functional justifications for charter damages. Compensation, vindication, deterrence. Compensation is an inherently individual inquiry. It is not engaged by the passage of legislation. Vindication, harm to society, yes. However, addressed by the declaration of invalidity. The striking down of legislation addresses the vindication function. So what are we left with? Deterrence. Damages in Ward, the court chief justice states, damages may serve to deter future breaches by state actors. When we're talking about passing legislation, and I go to Ward at paragraph 29, deterrence seeks to regulate 
government behavior in order to achieve compliance with the Constitution. In this regard, that, that's the only function that can be engaged here. When we're talking about charter damages for passing of state uh, of legislation, we are talking about deterrence. And we are saying, should the court award damages to deter the legislature? And that is where the speaker says, no, that is the impermissible chilling. That is, so when the respondent says- Can I, can you, I try to- Go ahead. Would you say that's uh, the same situation with Commission Scolaire? Commission Scolaire was not the passing of a law, it was dealing with a policy. And so you're talking about executive action. And again, executive action under a valid law, the state has no problem, or the state, the speaker has no problem with that applying. And this also addresses the concerns that have been raised in terms of prisoners. Yes, if a prisoner is thrown in prison pursuant to a law, they can get charter damages. It is a case like this one where it is solely the passage of legislation that is targeted. So well, yes, but policies, But Mackin says you don't get damages. That's a different... Yeah. Mackin says you don't get damages solely for the passage of unconstitutional law. You need something more. You need improper conduct or clearly wrong. So that's not what Mackin says. Nobody is arguing for abs absolute damages. You're arguing for absolute immunity here. So my question, you've said it several times and it's in your factum, it would, any indirect uh, recognition here would lead to impermissible chilling effect. Mackin has been around for more than 20 years. What has been the impermissible chilling effect in the last 20 years? Can you point us to an example? That is why I started by explaining how Mackin has been implemented, including by this court. And it was always about state acts. Mackin does not address situations where the motives of the legislature are being considered. And that is the inquiry that we say runs straight into parliament but privilege. Maybe because that would be such an extremely rare situation where someone would impute bad faith to parliament that you, Maybe that's why. So section nine of the 1689 Bill of Rights stands for the proposition that the courts cannot impeach or question parliamentary proceedings. Well, what, what, happens, what happens when the subpoena shows up for the clerk of the house to bring forward the records and where individual committee chairmen or chairpersons are called upon to testify. What does the speaker do then? Well, Justice Rowe, that's in fact, conceptually we're saying you can't get there because of parliamentary privilege, but then there are the practical concerns. And that's the concern we, we would see if this, if this began to be enforced this way, or sorry, adopted by courts this way, you would see self-censorship. You would see individual members questioning whether they should bring forward a bill and recall the house is the democratic institution and again the courts can intervene to strike down laws but the concern is questioning the motives of the court would necessarily require as you're saying 
that inquiry to take place. And what, even in the absence of a subpoena, we, we know that parliamentary privilege uh, acts to preclude testimony at least in certain periods of time. But from the speaker's perspective, any inquiry into the mental state. And Ms. Tompkins, it's not really an empirical question, it's an inst institutional question. It is a question of the court's lack of jurisdiction to inquire into the matter. So it isn't really a matter of, well, these are instances where there's been a, a problem and, and so on. It's about separation of powers, which is an institutional question, not an empirical one. Quite right. It's, it's privilege is a rule of curial jurisdiction, which, we, which is why we say the inquiry should not be permitted. And that would include, from the speaker's perspective, the inquiry into whether something is clearly wrong. That inquiry still necessitates an evaluation of the House's state of mind. Uh, the language of recklessness or negligence has been, has been thrown around today. We say that that is impeaching, that is questioning Parliament, and going back to 1689, that is not the function of the courts. Courts can well, strike down. Uh, what about, however, where it, the case does not require that going back, that there is evidence on the face of the legislation or the impact of the legislation, would you allow then that that would be, from an enforcement perspective, um, a case where the fact of passing an unconstitutional law that then is enforced to the letter would permit charter damages? The concern is even in such a case, there's, a, there's an imputing of state of mind. As I said, it's a negligence, it's reckless. You're, there has to be an evaluation of the House that involves the courts questioning the, the parliamentary proceedings that led to this legislative process. You can't say it's clearly wrong without saying that something went wrong in the parliamentary process, that it led to it. And that's why it is an impermissible inquiry for this court to make and the separation of powers necessitates a finding that passing legislation alone without conduct that impacts an individual where that individual can come to the court and be compensated but the mere passage of legislation right. cannot give rise to it will to use the word parlance it will never be a just and appropriate remedy thank you very much thank you Maître chief justice justices <clears throat> The Speaker of the Senate understands the importance of providing meaningful remedies to those whose charter rights have been breached. However, any claim for damages that depends on the finding of wrongful conduct, bad faith, or abuse of power in relation to parliamentary proceedings cannot be sustained without, as Justice Jamal said earlier this morning, uh, putting Parliament on trial, thereby um, eviscerating the privileges of freedom of speech and exclusive control over proceedings. With that said, the speaker takes no position as to whether charter damages could flow from the mere existence or operation of an unconstitutional law, so the, na the nature of the act itself, so long as the basis for doing so does not involve an inquiry into or impeachment of parliamentary proceedings. My submissions will address uh, four points. First, the existence and scope of the two privileges at issue are well established and both are fundamental to the separation of power. Second, as it relates to this appeal, their main effect is that courts have no jurisdiction to inquire into the bona fides of parliamentary proceedings. The purpose of the inquiry is irrelevant to privilege. Third, 
there's a fundamental substantive distinction between using parliamentary proceedings in the context of statutory interpretation and uh, doing so to impeach or question those proceedings. And finally, privilege is not merely a matter of evidence. It requires the courts to refrain from entertaining pleadings that would draw the courts into matters protected by privilege. So to begin, as this court is well aware, exclusive control over proceedings and freedom of speech have been established as privileges for centuries in the United Kingdom and well before Confederation uh, in Canada. They serve to prevent legislatures from being subject to civil or criminal penalties for what is said in proceedings. They also protect each house's ability to conduct its proceedings as it sees fit, free from interference from the crowns, the courts, or anyone else. By doing so, they help preserve the separation of powers and enable each house and its members to conduct their work with dignity and efficiency. For the purpose of this appeal, the scope of these privileges shouldn't be a matter of controversy. Legislating is the core business of a legislative assembly. As a majority of this court affirmed in Changyong at paragraph 23, uh, and I quote, parliamentary privilege is meant to enable the legislative branch and its members to proceed fearlessly and without interference in discharging their constitutional role. That is, enacting legislation and acting as a check on executive power. If parliamentary privilege is to have any meaning, there simply cannot be any doubt that it extends to the actions of drafting, introducing, debating, and adopting legislation. This brings me to my second point, which is that these privileges preclude the courts from inquiring into the bona fides of parliamentary proceedings. Courts have repeatedly reaffirmed that parliamentary privilege is absolute. Its exercise cannot be the subject of a judicial inquiry, not even in relation to compliance with the Charter. Well now, there was a certain dispute about the absolute nature of parliamentary privilege. It occurred in 1642 when Charles I showed up at the House of Commons and said, I will not encroach upon your privileges, but treason has no privilege. Perhaps now the Charter might be substituted for what Charles I said. <laughs> that, 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 that's an interesting point, Justice Rowe. Uh, um, uh, well, and, and, and yeah, so, um, the exercise, again, of privilege uh, cannot be the subject of an, an inquiry or even in complaints with the Charter, but as uh, it was pointed out by uh, Justice Jamal today and in, uh, in his reasons in, in Duffy, uh, courts have no jurisdiction to adjudicate challenges to parliamentary proceedings, even in the face of alleged misconduct that, in that case, was claimed to rise to the level of unlawfulness or criminality. Um, we also have included other precedents at paragraphs 35 to 39 of our factum. This prohibition against impeaching proceedings is not limited to instances in which liability is faced by the individual whose speech or action are impeached. Uh, it also applies to all parliamentary proceedings all the time. This was confirmed by the House of Lords in Pepper v. Hart and in Hamilton, two cases that have been relied upon in Canada. There are also precedents of Canadian courts applying this notion, including the Ontario Court of Appeal in uh, Jansen Ortho which is at tab six of my, my condensed book. Uh, in that case, a claim was struck as it was dependent on statements made by a parliamentarian, even though he was not uh, a party to the claim. The respondents also suggest in his reply that the appellant bears the burden of showing the necessity of absolute privilege, specifically in relation to a section 24 analysis. In our submission, 
the respondent here falls into the common trap of confusing the assessment of the existence and scope of the privilege with a challenge to its exercise. And the law is clear that the course rule is limited to the former. Um, here as noted, the privileges couldn't be clearer or more firmly established. Um, it's also clear that their scope extends to the process of enacting legislation. As a result, no inquiry is permissible into how or why those privileges were exercised, no matter the purpose of the inquiry. Holding that privilege is not absolute, but is rather subject to a standard of conduct, however high it may be, would defeat its purpose and erode the independence of the legislative branch vis-a-vis -vis the judicial branch. It is also, in our view, inconceivable for Macon to be taken as having set aside centuries of case law regarding parliamentary privilege without so much as a mention of that fundamental guarantee. For that reason, we submit that either this court did not intend for the passage in Macon to stand for the blanket proposition relied on below, uh, at least as far as bad faith, wrongful conduct is a, an abuse of power are, are, are concerned in relation to the parliamentary proceedings, or if it did, in our view, it should be regarded as having been rendered per incurium. My third point, as the Court of Appeal below, the respondent and many interveners claimed that inquiring into the bona fides of parliamentary proceedings for the purpose of assessing the, the availability of charter damages is no different than relying on debates to construe statutes. We submit that there's a fundamental distinction between those two exercises. Uh, in Pepper v. Hart, which is at tab four of my condensed book, and it's the very last page of the decision, um, the House of Lords clearly expressed the distinction between, on the one hand, using debates to carry out the intentions of Parliament, and on the other hand, using them to question the process by which such legislation was enacted, or to criticize anything said or done in Parliament in the course of enacting it. We submit that this court should apply the approach set out in Pepper v. Hart. Using debates to give effect to the intention of Parliament has long been accepted in Canada, and it does not constitute an impeachment of proceedings. Of course, in Canada, as a result of our uh, written constitution, an assessment of Parliament's intent may ultimately result in a finding of unconstitutionality, which will require the courts to grant a Section 52 remedy. This is not a challenge to the bona fides of legislatures. It simply reflects the fact that the Constitution prevents their intentions from being carried out. In contrast, inquiring into the bona fides of legislatures would invariably draw the courts into an assessment of the propriety of what was said in parliamentary proceedings. It would constitute an impeachment of those proceedings, thus defeating parliamentary privilege. And my last point is that, uh, contrary to the assertions made by the respondent and some interveners, privilege is not merely an evidentiary issue that can be left for trial. Um, doing so risks unnecessarily embroiling the courts in matters protected by privilege. Rather, the proper approach is to strike claims that are on their face inconsistent with privilege. Uh, this approach is consistent with this court's uh, direction at Babstock, which is at uh, tab 7 of our condensed book, uh, paragraph 18, that access to justice requires hopeless claims to be struck at the outset. In this way, the courts perform their proper function as guardians of the separation of power rather than as unwitting instruments of its erosion. And for this reason, uh, the Ontario Superior Court in, uh, of Justice in Rotman's had no hesitation in striking allegations in the pleading that depended on their proof of matters protected by privilege, as did the court in Duffy. Uh, similarly, and, and lastly, in Preble, uh, tab 9 of my condensed book, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council ruled that any pleading that on its face would amount to an impeachment of parliamentary proceedings 
must be struck. But there's, excuse me here, uh, there's another rule that, uh, um, so let's say we accept everything you say and you can't look into whether something is clearly wrong or in bad faith or an abuse of power. But does that invite us to say that we should then be looking at compensatory principles more, like if we're, if we're throwing that out of Macon, what's to prevent us from saying that we will focus then on whether there's exceptional individual harm to a person and, 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 and not have the same starting premise of Macon, because Macon is a balance. And so we, so according to the model you're proposing, if we just looked at uh, uh, compensation and individuals and created a duty of care test, that would suffice for your purposes. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're not um, uh, we're not making any submissions on what approach the court should take. So we we take no position on whether uh, a strict liability sort of test would have, would be appropriate or any sort of other sort of test. What we're saying is any approach to Section 24 damages that would be focusing on the law itself as opposed to parliamentary proceedings and, and the motives of members of a house or, or anything that went on in the legislative process, uh, that is our concern is that parliamentary privilege uh, protects those, those proceedings and that courts should not look into that. Any, right. any other uh, way to address Section 24 damages would uh, be unlikely to, to create any uh, parliamentary privilege concerns for the All speaker. Right. Thank you very much. Your time is up. Thank you. So the court will take uh, its uh, break for lunch. Alors, nous allons prendre la pause pour le déjeuner. On revient à 13h30. Bon appétit. Court, la cour. Maître Gill ou Maître Hébert Gosselin. Monsieur le juge en chef, mesdames et messieurs les juges, il y a quatre points qu'on veut aborder avec vous cet après-midi, si le temps le permet. Euh, je vais aborder les deux premiers en français. Ma collègue va aborder les deux secondes en anglais, mais on invite évidemment la Cour à poser les questions de son choix dans la langue qu'elle le désire. Notre premier point, c'est vraiment le plus simple à comprendre, c'est que l'immunité absolue que vous demande de reconnaître le procureur général du Canada ici, qui s'appliquerait effectivement, puis vous l'avez bien reconnu, dans les pires circonstances, celles où l'État, en plus d'avoir violé la Charte, a agi d'une manière qui est clairement fautive, elle n'a jamais existé en droit canadien, puis il n'y a aucune raison de la reconnaître aujourd'hui. Notre deuxième point, c'est que le test que la Cour a établi dans l'arrêt McKinn, puis qu'elle a incorporé dans l'arrêt Warren, permet déjà d'atteindre l'équilibre constitutionnel entre des impératifs, d'une part, qui protègent les droits individuels et ceux qui protègent les objectifs légitimes de l'État. Notre troisième point, c'est que ce code d'analyse-là… Les, yes. les, euh, 
les intérêts légitimes de l'État. Mais ce n'est pas l'État, monsieur. C'est la législature. Je vous dirais au contraire. Oui, et, et, et il y a des, des intérêts, des privilèges qui appartiennent à chaque institution de l'État. L'État, ce n'est pas comme un nuage. Oui. Il y a des, des, des aspects, des, des parties, des institutions qui, dans une combinaison, sont des institutions d'État. Et euh, on doit garder cette perspective, euh, à mon point de, point de vue. Absolument, puis on est complètement d'accord avec ça. La raison pourquoi j'utilise le mot « État », c'est qu'une réclamation de dommages fondée sur l'article 24, elle est adressée contre l'État, c'est ce que la Cour a dit dans l'arrêt Ward, au paragraphe 22. Évidemment, l'État, ça inclut l'exécutif, ça inclut le législatif, mais le cas d'analyse dans l'arrêt Ward, il protège déjà la séparation des pouvoirs. Il n'y a rien dans l'application de ces cas d'analyse-là qui porte atteinte à quelconque privilège parlementaire. Puis ça, ça va être notre troisième point. Notre quatrième point, c'est qu'évaluer la conduite étatique ou l'objectif que poursuivait le Parlement en adoptant une loi, c'est quelque chose que les tribunaux sont habitués de faire. C'est quelque chose que les plaideurs sont habitués de prouver. Puis il n'y a rien d'inhabituel avec tout ça. Sur notre premier point, euh, on a parlé de clarification de McKin. On a eu des questions sur est-ce qu'on veut renverser ou on ne veut pas renverser. Ici, on est, on est clairement dans renverser McKin. Le procureur général du Canada vous demande de créer une immunité absolue, même dans les circonstances où l'État a violé les droits fondamentaux de quelqu'un en agissant de manière abusive, en agissant de manière insouciante au mépris des droits constitutionnels dans l'adoption d'une loi. Puis vous l'avez bien dit, c'est une position qui est intenable, qui a été rejetée il y a plus de 20 ans mais par le juge Gontier maîtres, dans McKin. Euh, euh, quand euh, cette Cour a considéré ou euh, formulé ses motifs dans l'arrêt Macken, est-ce qu'ils ont tenu compte euh, à, à le privilège euh, de Parlement? Il me semble non. Écoutez, beaucoup de nos collègues nous ont parlé des privilèges parlementaires, puis ils existent, puis vous l'avez bien dit vous-même depuis. Je veux dire, il remonte au Bill of Rights de 1689. Je pense que le juge Gontier, quand il a décidé McKin en 2002, était très au courant des privilèges parlementaires, tout comme il était conscient du principe de la séparation des pouvoirs qui sont fondamentaux dans notre système. C'était bien connu, mais il n'y a aucune discussion dans les paragraphes pertinents de McKin des de, de, de concepts de privilèges parlementaires. Alors, il y a aussi une position moyenne, pas de renversement ou d'abandonner complètement McKin, mais de clarifier et de mettre l'emphase sur les critères de comportement clairement fautifs, parce que ça, c'est une position moyenne qui peut euh, protéger et euh, respecter le privilège parlementaire qui, euh, dont nous avons entendu parler euh, euh, avant midi. Alors, il y a une position moyenne aussi, il n'y a pas seulement des extrêmes. Je vous dirais que la, la raison pour laquelle le juge Gontier dans Mackin n'a pas parlé des privilèges parlementaires, c'est parce que les privilèges parlementaires ne sont pas affectés lorsqu'on reconnaît qu'un individu, selon l'article 24, peut demander des dommages pour la violation de ses droits. La question dans Mackin, puis la manière dont ça a été incorporé dans l'arrêt la, Warren, c'est qu'après qu'un individu a démontré à la première étape que son droit a été violé, c'est ça le fondement de la cause d'action, c'est la violation du droit. Puis ça, c'est apparent du texte de l'article 24 qui nous parle d'une violation de droit puis d'une réparation juste et appropriée. Si vous, démontrez, vous dites la première chose qu'un individu doit démontrer, c'est une violation du droit. Pourquoi vous avez allé à ce moment-là à regarder la conduite, la conduite dans le 
processus législatif, une fois que la loi est déclarée inconstitutionnelle, est inconstitutionnelle parce qu'il y a eu violation d'un droit de la Charte? Oui, bien, deux choses. Euh, premièrement, le fait qu'une loi soit inconstitutionnelle ne veut pas dire que toutes les personnes qui ont été affectées par la loi ont vu leur droit être violé. Puis le meilleur exemple de ça, c'est sous l'article 7, qu'on a des questions de portée excessive. Mm -hmm. Puis Al-Bashir, Bedford, c'est un bel exemple de ça où on a une loi qui peut être inconstitutionnelle sans que ça viole pour autant les droits d'un individu en particulier. Fait que ce fardeau-là, il existe. En l'espèce, le procureur général du Canada admet que la loi est non seulement inconstitutionnelle, mais a effectivement violé les droits de notre client, paragraphe 65 de son mémoire. Il reste quand même la deuxième étape, où le demandeur doit démontrer que les dommages rempliraient une des trois fonctions des, des dommages qui ont été identifiés dans la reward, que les dommages seraient une réparation juste et appropriée. Mais plutôt, la juge Martin nous parlait d'un équilibre. Et c'est pour cette raison-là que c'est après avoir démontré l'atteinte à un droit, puis après avoir démontré que les dommages seraient une réparation juste et convenable, que là, l'État, la troisième étape, a l'occasion de soulever des défenses. Une défense de bonne gouvernance, de bon gouvernement, comme celle identifiée dans McKinsey, c'est un exemple. Mais ce qu'on cherche à obtenir ici, c'est un équilibre. Mais c'est l'État qui va décider de soulever la défense. Mais en quoi est-ce que vous avez le droit d'aller voir? À partir du moment où la loi est inconstitutionnelle, ce qui a été dit au Parlement, ou la manière dont la loi a été adoptée, en quoi est-ce que c'est pertinent pour le recours sous 24.1? Je vous dirais que dans la mesure, la réponse simple à ça, c'est que dans la mesure où l'État soulève une défense de bon gouvernement, de bon gouvernement, une défense de bonne gouvernance, c'est absolument pas inapproprié pour une cour d'aller regarder si effectivement l'État agissait comme bon gouvernement. McKinn et Warren. J'ai l'impression que, pour faire suite à la question de ma, co ma collègue, euh, si vous alléguez mauvaise foi, euh, abus, abus de, de. Vous devez établir plus que, que la loi est inconstitutionnelle. Absolument. Et c'est là où on rentre en jeu le deuxième débat. En fait, ça peut être le premier débat pour, pour plusieurs. C'est que la loi soit inconstitutionnelle, qu'on puisse la déclarer inconstitutionnelle en vertu 52, c'est une chose. Qu'on puisse réclamer des dommages et intérêts, c'est une autre chose. Ward en parle, McKinn réservait la possibilité. Mais quand on dit que, et c'est la base de votre cours, puis peut-être que je le comprends mal, c'est de dire, on, on invoque également la mauvaise foi parce que le le législateur, en adoptant cette loi-là, savait qu'elle était inconstitutionnelle. Elle l'a adoptée né néanmoins. Et la preuve, c'est que par la suite, elle a été déclarée inconstitutionnelle. On, a été, on est dans un autre niveau. Et c'est là où je pense que le bas blesse pour plusieurs. Puis je vous demande de clarifier la situation. Jusqu'à quel point, effectivement, vous avez l'obligation de prouver les raisons en arrière de, 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 des circonstances qui ont, qui ont fait en sorte que le, le projet de loi a été déposé. D'où pour certains, la question de savoir est-ce qu'on vraiment on est obligé de, de voir le comportement des, des législateurs, ce qu'ils ont écrit, etc. Voyez-vous, oui. c'est un des enjeux qui nous concernent. Dans la mesure où l'État choisit de soulever une défense de bon gouvernement, là, effectivement, il faut qu'on prouve par les cantons de quelque chose de plus. Une simple déclaration d'inconstitutionnalité, ce n'est pas suffisant, puis ça, la Cour l'a établi dans McKin. Mais dans McKin, c'est un bon exemple de ça. Dans McKin, on, on, on veut clarifier McKin, mais McKin, la loi qui était en question dans cette affaire-là, c'était une loi qui abolissait un, les, les postes, le poste des juges surnuméraires. Il n'était pas question d'une application d'une loi. La mauvaise conduite étatique qui était à l'enjeu, puis qui était alléguée dans McKinney, puis qui a été analysée par le juge Gontier au paragraphe 82-83, c'est une conduite étatique pré-adoption d'une loi. On se situe clairement dans le même type de, de scénario qu'ici. Sur la question, je pense qu'il 
Puis, M. Jamal, vous, vous avez posé beaucoup de questions ce matin sur est-ce que c'est approprié pour une cour. Dans la mesure où l'État soulève cette défense de bon gouvernement, est-ce que c'est approprié pour une cour d'aller regarder avant l'adoption d'une loi? Notre position, c'est que c'est oui, puis la cour le fait tout le temps. Puis, je vais vous donner des exemples de ça. Des exemples qui montrent que lorsque les tribunaux regardent la conduite étatique avant l'adoption d'une loi, elle ne viole pas la séparation des pouvoirs, puis elle ne viole pas la, les privilèges parlementaires. Puis le premier exemple de ça, c'est Begum Drug Mart. Madame la juge Kirkatsonniste, vous l'avez mentionné ce matin. On tente de faire une distinction du côté du procureur général sur l'interprétation d'une loi qui aurait une différence entre un exercice neutre d'interprétation législative de déterminer l'intention du Parlement en adoptant une loi, puis le fait d'attribuer un caractère inapproprié, illégitime ou abusif à, sa, à cet objectif-là. Mais c'est précisément ce que le juge en chef Dixon a fait dans Begum Drug Mart. Puis on n'a pas besoin d'y retourner, vous savez les faits de l'affaire, mais le Jean-Jacques Dixon a bien expliqué qu'une loi peut violer la charte par ses effets, puis ce sera le cas dans la majorité des cas. Mais une loi peut également violer la charte par son objectif si l'État, en adoptant la loi, puis je cite le juge Dixon, avait un objectif qui était nettement abusif. Puis auquel cas, cette loi-là, elle peut être invalidée sur cette seule base-là. C'est bon de se le rappeler, ici on est dans... Loi, c'est pas le comportement fautif des de, de législateurs ou du Parlement. C'est pas, ce sont deux choses très différentes, je crois. La loi et le comportement des, 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 des membres, des députés, des membres du Parlement, c'est tout à fait différent. Je suis d'accord avec vous qu'il y a une différence entre objectif et conduite. Euh, par contre, reste que quand on se demande l'objectif d'une loi, une loi est adoptée par quelqu'un, adoptée par le Parlement. Reste que c'est l'objectif qu'avait le Parlement en adoptant la loi, c'est pour ça. 70 de oui. votre factum qui m'intéresse beaucoup. Oui. Euh, vous dites que subsection 24.1 does not provide a freestanding cause of action based on parliamentary wrongdoing or any form of, of state misconduct in the absence of a charter right. And you, vous ajoutez, as the court explained in word, the constitutional violation itself is the wrong on which the claim for damages is based. Alors, vous dites, la, la violation, c'est ce... Alors, peu importe la manière avec laquelle ou dans laquelle la violation constitutionnelle s'est produite, vous semblez dire, c'est pas important. Ce qui est important, c'est voir est-ce qu'il y a eu violation d'un droit. Le fondement de la cause d'action, c'est la violation. La question de la mauvaise conduite étatique, elle est pertinente pour évaluer si l'État a une défense, mais pas si, on a une, si moi j'ai une cause d'action. Et Monsieur, ça, la cause vous, bien vous insistez à utiliser le mot... Le... L'État. Est-ce que, est que votre intention est de parler sur le Parlement ou tout l'ensemble des institutions Parce que, dans un certain sens, je suis comme Louis XIV, l'État c'est moi, peut-être l'État c'est nous, ouais la Cour, le, le Parlement, l'exécutif. Ouais Il y a une différence entre les, 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 les variétés des institutions vous inquiétez pas, je ne parle pas de vous, donc ça, il n'y aura pas de problème. Mais quand je parle de l'État, la raison pour qu'on ne distingue pas d'un, je vous ai déjà référé au paragraphe de Warren, on poursuit l'État, mais peut-être le meilleur exemple concret de ça, si on a parlé de Brazo ce matin, on peut aller voir dans Brazo l'analyse que le juge Sharp et le juge Duriens font. De un, Brazo, on ne s'adresse pas à l'exécutif, on ne s'adresse pas au législatif. C'est le Canada qui est poursuivi en tant qu'État. Et le privilège appartient au Parlement, par l'État. Absolument. Noir, oui. Absolument. Absolument. 
Mais allons voir Brazo. Oui. Mais attends, je, moi, je me demande s'il y a une... Tout le monde fait la même lecture de Macken. Vous avez commencé votre plaidoirie en insistant sur le comportement clairement fautif de mauvaise foi ou d'abus de pouvoir, ce qui est ce que dit M. Contier dans, le, le, dans, le, dans ses motifs. Mais tout le monde ce matin a parlé de « clearly wrong » me semble-t-il dans un autre sens, que la loi a été adoptée de manière clairement inconstitutionnelle et que ceci, là je rejoins le commentaire de Mme Côté, que ceci suffit en soi, tandis que l'analyse de M. Gontier était à un tout autre niveau. Et si vous lisez les sources qu'il cite au paragraphe 78 à 83, le, le, le traité de Dussault et Borja en droit administratif qui insiste sur la responsabilité euh, à, à partir du, de, la, de la faute et, et de la part de l'immunité. Euh, des, des anciens arrêts de la cour, Wellbridge, euh, Potash, qui ne parlent pas, comme, euh, comme mes collègues ont dit, du, du privilège parlementaire, de la souveraineté du Parlement, n'est pas ne sont pas dans ce giron-là, sont dans un giron de responsabilité civile. Est-ce que l'actualisation de Macken doit être faite en fonction de l'enjeu de, de notre dossier ou est-ce que la Cour d'appel nouveau, du Nouveau-Brunswick avait parfaitement raison de dire « Macken s'applique, un point c'est tout ». Sur la question de le, le standard de Mackin, je pense que la raison pour laquelle il y a eu, je dirais deux choses par rapport à ça. Je pense que l'aspect la, de clairement inconstitutionnel, c'est une des circonstances qui pourrait potentiellement rencontrer le fardeau euh, dans Mackin. Puis la raison pour ça, c'est quand on regarde l'analyse qu'a faite le juge Gontier dans Mackin, euh, une des raisons pour laquelle le juge Gontier, au paragraphe, euh, au paragraphe 82, décide de ne pas octroyer de dommages, c'est parce qu'il y a eu un changement, effectivement, dans la loi. C'est parce que la loi en question avait été, adoptée, avait été adoptée avant le renvoi sur les juges de la Cour provinciale. Donc, c'est... Monsieur le juge Cazerre, je, je ne vous entends pas. En même temps, il dit, excusez-moi, il, il dit qu'il n'y a aucune preuve que le, le gouvernement du Nouveau-Brunswick a agi négligemment de mauvaise foi. Il, il est... Il est dans une logique qui n'est pas, pas la logique que la loi est à sa face même inconstitutionnelle. C'est un, une loi qui porte sur la torture. Sur, on n'est pas dans ce giron-là. Il est dans une autre logique, me semble-t-il, dans ses motifs. Je ne dis pas qu'il avait tort ou que c'est du mauvais droit, mais c'est juste que c'est un registre différent dans lequel il écrit qu'on cherche maintenant à importer Peut-être on l'a fait avec Ward, mais on l'a importé dans le contexte qui est le nôtre. C'est ça, je crois, le problème que certains ont quand vous appliquez, vous proposez l'application pleine et entière de, de Macken. Je veux dire, je pense que le standard dont, dont discutait le juge, le juge Gontier, le standard de conduite clairement fautive, je veux dire, reste que la jurisprudence sur les remèdes constitutionnels, elle est jeune. Les, les mots qu'a utilisé le juge Gontier avec raison étaient des mots verts, puis avec, parce que la jurisprudence va se développer dans, dans ce contexte-là, le juge Gontier établissait quand même clairement que cette conduite-là 
On reproche à l'État et ainsi de suite tant dans l'adoption que l'application d'une loi. Mais c'est pour ça que je vous ramenais à Brazo, parce que c'est quand même intéressant de voir de la manière dont ce, dont ce fardeau-là de, de conduite clairement fautive, clearly wrong, a été interprété. Puis je pense que le standard qui est appliqué par les juges Sharp et juges Durians, paragraphe 87 de Brazo, puis je vous amène, c'est à l'onglet 4. Mais, mais je m'exprime peut-être mal. C'est le langage qu'il emploie, c'est le langage pour évaluer l'action étatique de l'exécutif. C'est pour ça que M. Rowe, mon collègue Rowe, quand il vous dit « Qu'en est-il du Parlement? » C'est parce que le, le langage dans Macon ne semble pas rattraper la simple adoption d'une loi. Il semble être euh, guidé par un souci de l'évaluation de l'action étatique. C'est ça le, le problème. Je ne dis pas que ce, ça ne veut pas dire qu'on ne peut pas extrapoler de Macon. Ça, c'est un autre point. Mais il, il est dans un autre giron, dirait-on. Euh, avec, avec les gars, je ne partage pas votre lecture de Macon. Au contraire, je pense que Macon était clair, concernait clairement une conduite étatique qui était pré-adoption et donc qui, ne pouvait, qui, qui, était, qui était une conduite législative. Puis d'ailleurs, c'est pour cette raison-là qu'on parle de l'adoption de la loi spécifiquement. Donc, je ne pense pas qu'on parlait seulement d'une conduite exécutive. Euh, puis je veux dire, on a, par, on a parlé de Began Drama, puis ça revient un petit peu au point, le, le, le point que le juge Rowe et le juge Jamal mentionnaient, l'aspect approprié ou non de, de déterminer l'objectif, un objectif abusif du Parlement. Began Drug Mart en est une, un exemple, mais j'aimerais vous parler d'un autre exemple qui est encore plus récent qui est dans Provincial Court Judges Association, qui est un arrêt sur l'indépendance judiciaire de 2020 unanime de cette Cour, avec des motifs rédigés par la juge Claire Katsanis. Puis, je vais vous amener à, à l'onglet euh, 10, dans mon cahier condensé. Vous savez, quand les conditions salariales des juges sont modifiées par l'État, puis ici je parle d'État parce que les motifs de la Cour comprennent très bien que c'est tant le législatif que l'exécutif, puis ça, c'est apparent du paragraphe 31. Quand l'État décide de modifier les conditions salariales des juges, il y a un contrôle limité, contrôle judiciaire limité qui existe pour contrôler la validité de cette loi-là, selon l'article 100 de la loi constitutionnelle, contrôle de type Boldner. Dans ce contrôle-là, une des questions principales à chacune des trois étapes, c'est de savoir si l'État avait un objectif illégitime, un objectif déguisé, et là, je cite, je vais vous amener, c'est au paragraphe 41, je pense que c'est le plus apparent. Puis là, on évalue la, la validité de cette loi-là. De plus, cela ne signifie pas que le gouvernement peut se cacher derrière des motifs qui dissimulent un objectif illégitime ou déguisé, aussi parfois qualifié dans la jurisprudence de la Cour de malhonnête ou spécieux. Il faut se garder d'interpréter le renvoi relatif à la rémunération des juges et l'arrêt Baudneux comme s'il signifiait que dans la mesure où des motifs invoqués publiquement par le gouvernement sont légitimes à première vue et semblent s'appuyer sur un fondement factuel raisonnable, le gouvernement pourrait fournir des motifs de mauvaise foi. J'anticipe votre question, Monsieur le juge. Le gouvernement, ici, on ne parle pas simplement de l'exécutif. Le gouvernement, dans cette décision-là, c'est tant le législatif que l'exécutif. Je, je ne partage pas votre point de vue concernant euh, que veut dire le gouvernement. Le gouvernement, pour moi, c'est l'exécutif. La législature, c'est une autre institution. C'est une différence. Pour vous, tout, c'est l'État. 
Oui, c'est l'État. Le gouvernement, ce n'est pas la législature. La raison pourquoi je dis gouvernement, c'est que dans cette décision-là, le mot gouvernement est défini au paragraphe 31 comme selon le contexte s'entendre de l'exécutif, de la législature ou de l'Assemblée législative. C'est la troisième avant-dernière phrase du paragraphe 31. C'est simplement cette raison-là pour laquelle j'utilise le mot gouvernement. Donc, ça, c'est un autre exemple où on s'interroge sur les objectifs illégitimes. Puis là, ici, il était question de l'adoption d'une résolution législative, mais. L'arrêt Beauregard. L'adoption d'une loi ici, là. Pardon? On ne parle pas de l'adoption d'une loi ici. Bien, ici, c'est un acte législatif, c'est une résolution, euh, une résolution qui avait été entérinée par l'Assemblée législative, mais le même type de contrôle s'applique pour des lois. Puis l'arrêt Beauregard qui est cité dans cette décision-là, ça confirme exactement ça. Il était question d'une loi fédérale. Euh, puis le même type de contrôle s'applique. J'ai une question pour vous. Oui. Supposons qu'une loi est déclarée inconstitutionnelle et la Cour décide de suspendre la déclaration d'invalidité. Alors, c'est clair que la loi est inconstitutionnelle, mais la Cour suspend la déclaration pour 12 mois. Oui. Est-ce que ça veut dire que les personnes affectées vont, ont le droit de réclamer des dommages en vertu de 24-1? Ils pourraient demander des dommages, puis je veux dire, je pense que ça apparaît des motifs de la Cour dans Al-Bashir. L'effectivité d'une déclaration d'inopérabilité, le fait que ce soit suspendu ou non, ça n'empêche pas de demander des réparations individuelles. Il y a peut-être une exemption constitutionnelle individuelle pour cette personne-là, mais moi, je parle du recours en dommages. Mais reste que l'exemption constitutionnelle est basée tout en temps sur l'article 24.1. Oui. Moi, je lis, cette, je, veux dire, je lis la disposition comme autorisant une réparation individuelle qui n'est pas nécessairement liée à l'effectivité d'une déclaration d'invalidité dans la mesure où on démontre l'atteinte à un droit, parce que reste que c'est toujours l'atteinte à un droit qui est le fondement. Le fait qu'une déclaration d'inopérabilité soit suspendue, par exemple, pour un an, ça ne veut pas dire que les droits des individus ne sont pas violés. C'est pour cette raison-là que dans les arrêts Carter, que dans les arrêts Enlevue, Bissonnet, on, per, on permet des réparations individuelles pendant des périodes, euh, pendant des périodes euh, de suspension. Donc, moi, je ne vois pas nécessairement… Avez-vous un exemple d'une réparation en dommages qui a été accordée sous 24.1 pendant qu'une déclaration d'invalidité a été suspendue? Non. En ai, en non, en plus, pas. je n'en connais pas. Ouais. Mais ce n'est pas dire que ce n'est pas possible. Puis le problème avec une immunité absolue, c'est que c'est de dire ça, que c'est jamais possible. Puis ce qu'on dit, c'est que le fardeau est peut-être élevé. Puis je veux dire, la Cour… Je pense qu'on s'entend là-dessus, là, que immunité totale, euh, bon, le procureur général le réclame. Parlant pour moi-même, je trouve ça assez audacieux. Mais, euh, mais on parle plutôt d'immunité de, de, relative, là. Et même à ça, le, le fardeau doit être très élevé, là. Le fardeau est élevé. Um, le fardeau est élevé, mais je, je pense que le fardeau est effectivement élevé, puis je pense qu'on est d'accord avec ça. L'aspect la, de savoir le caractère approprié de déterminer, mettons là, je vais vous donner des exemples sur l'objectif, les objectifs illégitifs, les objectifs abusifs. J'entends vo votre point qu'il y, y a une différence entre conduite et objectif. Euh, donc, j'aimerais aborder un exemple qui est peut-être plus dans le champ de la conduite. Puis ça, c'est la jurisprudence de cette Cour sur l'article 2D, la liberté d'association. Vous savez, lorsque l'État et l'employé et l'employeur d'employés pour lesquels il veut modifier les conditions salariales par une loi, bien, la jurisprudence de l'article 2D est très claire que dans la mesure où on modifie, par exemple, les conditions salariales, la question de savoir si cette loi-là est constitutionnelle, donc respecte l'article 2D, prend en considération une évaluation de la conduite étatique qui précède l'adoption d'une loi. C'est ce que cette Cour a confirmé. Dans, dans l'arrêt. Euh... Et c'est un aspect de l'inconstitutionnalité la, de, de la loi. Et ça, 
m'amène à la question du juge Casier, euh, parce que euh, dans notre cas, c'est une, une question de l'inconstitutionnalité de la loi. Ce n'est pas une question de la conduite de, de l'État. Alors, selon vous, les, les trois critères énoncés par le juge Gontier au paragraphe 78, est-ce que ce, ce sont trois critères indépendants ou ce sont des critères qui informent la question de l'inconstitutionnalité de la loi Parce que dans la, la situation de, de la conduite de l'État, peut-être ce sont trois conditions indépendantes. Mais dans le contexte de l'inconstitutionnalité de la loi, d'une loi, peut-être ce sont des facteurs, mais la question pertinente est l'inconstitutionnalité de la loi et la mauvaise foi sans inconstitutionnalité de la loi n'est pas important. C'est mauvais, nécessairement, mais ce n'est pas une question de, de l'inconstitutionnalité. Alors, la question pertinente est, est-ce que la, la loi est inconstitutionnelle Et peut-être la, la mauvaise foi ou l'abus de pouvoir, c'est un facteur pertinent, mais la question centrale est l'inconstitutionnalité de la loi. Ben, pour que... La, pour que je veux dire, sur la, la, la question centrale, je veux dire, dans Makin, effectivement, la question de l'inconstitutionnalité, elle est, elle est nécessaire. Je veux dire, il faut, pour avoir une défense de type Makin, il faut que la violation du droit découle en tout ou en partie d'une loi, donc auquel cas on ait pu demander une réparation sous 52.1, ou que cette réparation-là ait déjà été octroyée. Là, en effet, on peut demander des remèdes sous 24.1. On n'est pas en train de prétendre qu'on peut demander, mettons, quand la violation découle d'une loi, on n'est pas en train de demander une réparation individuelle si la loi n'a pas été déclaré inconstitutionnel sur 52 ans, puis ça, c'est Ferguson, puis le droit est clair. Mais dans la mesure où le, la, la loi a été déclarée inconstitutionnelle, je veux dire, la, les, le facteur mauvaise foi, habit de pouvoir, conduite, qui est clairement fautive, c'est le fardeau supplémentaire qu'il faut rencontrer pour aller, pour pouvoir repousser la défense de bonne gouvernance que l'État va soulever dans le cadre de l'analyse de Ward. C'est comme, c'est notre lecture euh, de l'arrêt McKin, puis de l'arrêt Ward, puis de toute la jurisprudence qui l'a confirmé depuis. Um, je vois que le temps file. Je vais laisser du temps à ma collègue pour aborder les autres points avec vous. J'aimerais juste avant ça prendre l'arrêt Brazo. Je sais que ça fait quelques fois que j'essaie d'y revenir. Um, puis je veux prendre l'arrêt Brazo pour deux choses. Premièrement, je prendrais le paragraphe 101 avec vous. Euh, onglet 4. Je prends Brazo parce que c'est... C'est un bel exemple d'une analyse en pratique, comment ça fonctionne d'appliquer le critère de McKinney-Edward. Euh, puis là, il faut comprendre, là, il était question d'isolement administratif. On avait une loi qui a, dé, qui a été déclarée inconstitutionnelle en Colombie-Britannique, au Québec, en Ontario, dans CCLA. Là, la question, c'est, puisque cette loi a été déclarée inconstitutionnelle, est-ce qu'on peut aussi demander des dommages sur 24? Donc, on est après la déclaration d'inconstitutionnalité. Une des raisons, ou deux des raisons pour lesquelles la loi avait été déclarée inconstitutionnelle, c'est le fait qu'il n'y avait pas de, de cap au nombre de jours pendant lesquels on pouvait demeurer en isolement, puis le fait qu'il n'y avait pas de révision indépendante. Mais je ne suis pas d'accord avec l'argument du procureur général du Canada que Brazo concerne strictement une conduite exécutive. À mon avis, l'analyse du juge Sharp et du juge Durian ici montre très bien que on s'intéresse à la conduite du Canada, puis que c'est tant exécutif, qui, qui pourrait se qualifier tant d'exécutif puis de législatif. Puis, je vais lire à partir de la deuxième phrase. Canada was repeatedly told of the harm of administra administrative segregation caused, of the need to impose a cap on the length of time inmates were subjected to the practice, 
of the need not to use administrative segregation for inmates suffering from mental illness and of the need for proper independent review of administrative segregation decision. La manière qu'un État peut établir un cap, la manière que l'État peut établir une révision indépendante, c'est par une loi. C'est en adoptant une loi. Donc, la conduite ici qui est reprochée, elle est de nature législative. À la phrase suivante, on parle de politique, on parle de la manière dont le régime d'isolement administratif était appliqué. L'on situe dans l'exécutif. Mais, mais dans Brazon, Brazon est un bel exemple du fait qu'en pratique, la conduite, elle peut être tant exécutive que législative. Dans la plupart des cas, euh, il y a confusion entre l'exécutif et le législatif. L'exécutif contrôle le Parlement, normalement par une majorité ou en tout cas avec une coalition, sur le législatif. Alors, c'est un peu euh, blanc, bonnet, bonnet blanc. C'est exactement pour ça, je pense, que le juge Sharp et le juge Dorian ne se, se laissent pas prendre dans ces distinctions-là, je veux dire, qui sont importantes, mais, mais fondamentalement en pratique, qui ne sont, qui, qui sont pas artificielles, mais qui ne reflètent pas la réalité. Euh, disons que c'est une approche plus pratique. Une approche plus pratique, mais reste... Le, le principe de la séparation du pouvoir demeure quand même, fait partie de notre... Euh, de notre ordre constitutionnel quand même. Absolument, absolument. Je dirais, j'ajouterais simplement que le fait que la séparation des pouvoirs ou qu'au Canada, on n'ait pas une séparation des pouvoirs stricts, ça a toujours été rétabli par la Cour dans le renvoi sur la sécession dans Wells, puis dans le dossier euh, sur, dans British Columbia, euh, dans euh, le do, la décision de 2020 que je viens de vous citer, donc euh, Provincial Court Judges Association, je vous réfère au paragraphe 51 pour exactement ce même principe-là. Je ne pense pas que la Cour devrait être aveugle à cette réalité-là. Je vais laisser la parole à ma collègue. Justices. You need to believe that a court is not entitled to do that. The problem is you do it all the time. Actually, we don't. Um, you have said that uh, you've combined the two questions that I referred uh, to uh, counsel for the Attorney General of Canada, one relating to the preparation of legislation and the second one relating to its consideration before the legislature. And I think you've just said to us, we look into the manner in which the legislature conducts its affairs in adopting legislation. I think that is simply inaccurate. But perhaps you can direct me to when we do so. Right. Well, I think that my colleague began that process when he brought you to Big M, where he uh, showed you that the court is fully entitled and regularly does look to the legislature's purpose and intent when evaluating the constitutionality of legislation under the Charter. I'll take you to another example outside of the Charter context, though. If we look at Morgenthaler, right, the 1993 one, 
That's, that's one of the canonical cases on pith and substance. And there, the question is, uh, what is the legislature really trying to do? What is the legislature really trying to do? There, courts don't defer to the stated purpose of legislation when evaluating whether or not a law is ultra-virus. What they do is they look at the context, the legislative history, the parliamentary debates to see what it was that the legislator is actually doing. And in Morgenthaler, for example, it didn't matter what the government of Nova Scotia said. The court was fully entitled to say, this isn't about regulating private clinics. What this is about is targeting one man and his abortion clinic. So well, what I think does, that what, what, what is left of parliamentary privilege? What is left of the, of the fact that until now, in cases like Chagnon mm -hmm. and New Brunswick Broadcasting and the like, we have said the role of the courts is to ascertain the boundaries of parliamentary privilege. Mm -hmm. But once we have identified those boundaries, that which is within the privilege of the legislature is not a justiciable matter. Right. Justice Go, I, I promise that I will circle back to parliamentary privilege in greater detail later. Um, but I think that what I would say for now is we agree with you that parliamentary privilege can sometimes look like a jurisdictional issue. There are some things that are just fully outside of the purview of the courts to look at. And in, that was the argument made in Chagnon. They didn't win that argument in Chagnon. But there are cases like Duffy and Boulres that speak to that idea that there are some kinds of where the, the, the activity in question, the, the alleged wrongdoing is fully within its parliament's job to deal with it. And there the courts stay out. The other kind of situation is the subpoenaing a minister example that you raised earlier. And there we would say that parliamentary privilege isn't a question of jurisdiction, it's just a question of evidence. It's an ordinary question of evidence. So that you, you would contemplate subpoenaing the speaker of, 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 of the Parliament of Canada, the House of Commons, you would, you would contemplate subpoenaing the records of, of, from the clerk of the, of, of the Parliament of Canada. You would contemplate calling as witnesses members of Parliament to indicate their intentions and their motivations. Is that what we're talking about? No, not at all, Justice Rowe. I wouldn't contemplate any of those things. But the fact remains that as a litigator, um, the fact that you don't get every piece of evidence on your wish list, or you don't get to call every witness you might like to, doesn't mean that you don't have a cause of action. And so I think I, I just want to maybe uh, bring the court to, um, to I, I want to talk a little about, about this practical issue. Because it's true that there are some kinds of cases where issues of privilege or cabinet confidentiality or any number of other um, sort of special rules that are involved in litigating against the state will mean that it's difficult um, or that you have to be creative in proving your case. And so um, I want to be practical about that. I just want to finish this piece, though, about how courts just truly do do this all the time. I'd bring you to Canadian Council for Refugees at tab 18. Because it goes to some of the questions that were posed earlier about this idea of uh, clearly wrong. Um, how do we think about what the legislature knew or should have known? It's right, it's the last page at this tab, 114. Um, this, we're really sharing this for a methodological reason. It's a case about the foreseeability of Section 7 violations abroad. This is Justice Kazira writing for a unanimous court, leave less than a year ago. So we're talking, when he says effect, he's talking about an, uh, an unconstitutional effect, an effect that violates Section 7. An effect can be shown to be foreseeable in at least two ways. First, challengers can show that Canada had actual knowledge of the risk that the effects would emerge. For example, 
Parliamentary debates discussing the risks may establish this knowledge. Second, challengers can also show that Canada ought to have known about the risks such that knowledge can be imputed. Public reporting, academic analysis, and other sources originating outside government may help establish constructive knowledge. So there, we see this court, again, unanimously looking at what the state knew or should have known in relation to the constitutionality of legislation and its unconstitutional effects. Um, Justice Karasanis, do you have a question? Well, yes, I was going to follow up on Justice Jamal's question. Um, and the, the point has been made that there's a difference in looking at what the objective is of legislation mm -hmm. and looking at the conduct itself. Mm -hmm. What if you looked at the, all of these things in paragraph 114, and if, if as part of the basis of unconstitutionality, clearly wrong, clearly unconstitutional, improper purpose was one of the bases or was a basis on which it was found unconstitutional, then you're looking at improper purpose, not for the purpose of assessing conduct, but for unconstitutionality, and maybe that's what factors into the way good governance defense is applied. In other words, if you get to good governance and the basis of finding unconstitutionality was either that it's clearly wrong or that there was improper conduct, then maybe that gets you over the good governance defense. Yeah, we would agree. We would agree that that's one way of overcoming the good governance defense. I'm wondering if that's how you reconcile the concern that it's not directly the conduct that's at issue, it's rather in the case the constitutionality, but it can be constitutionality grounded on improper purpose. You know what? Does I that work? I want to go even further than what you're saying, Justice Kerkasanis, and I think it circles back to this question that you asked earlier, which is, are we leaving something on the table if we only focus on the clearly wrong prior to the enactment of legislation and not the issue of bad faith or improper purpose or abuse of power? Are, they, are, they, are they independent grounds then? We, we think that there, there are a series of different forms of state misconduct that allow you to overcome a good governance defense. Because fundamentally, the question is, um, has the state engaged in misconduct that negates its claim to you've a just, defense you've of just put your finger good on governance? It. Mm -hmm. You've said the good governance defense. You keep evading parliamentary privilege. You're saying you don't have to think about parliamentary privilege. You just look at something called good governance. And I keep saying, when you inquire into the motivations and, 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 and the particular intent and why this was done and that was done within the legislature by a certain group or why this vote was taken, etc., etc., you have gone beyond this vague notion of the state and good governments and you're right on the bullseye of parliamentary privilege. Parliamentary privilege. Let's not talk about parliament. Let's talk about the state and good governance. Well, Justice Rowe, we, we don't disagree that parliamentary privilege may pose a practical barrier in some kinds of cases, depending on the kinds of evidence you want to lead. We, we don't contest that that could be an issue down the road for certain kinds of litigants. What we do say, though, is, you know what, actually, let, let me give you two examples of how you could talk about um, bad faith or abuse of power prior to the enactment of legislation that we don't think would require any intrusion on parliamentary privilege at all, okay? 
take, take Ron Corelli. This is a case that lives like rent-free in all of our minds, right? Um, Ron Corelli is a case where um, Duplessis deprived uh, Mr. Ron Corelli improperly for improper reasons. It's the canonical case on abuse of power and bad faith. Legislative capacity. Sure, but imagine he was. Imagine, because we, we can see that du Duplessis controlled the government at the time, right? So yeah, imagine- Yeah, but he was not acting in that capacity. Okay, but, but, but let's do the thought experiment. Um, I agree with you that there is, but let's do the thought experiment, okay? He was the attorney general as well. Yeah. He was the attorney general as well, right? Um, so imagine that nothing is different about Duplessis except for the fact that instead of executive action through the Liquor Commission, uh, there's just a law that's adopted that has the same effect of depriving Mr. Roncarelli of his liquor license, right? We would agree that Mr. Roncarelli experienced the exact same violation of his rights and that as a matter of principle, he should be entitled to the exact same kind of remedy. Now, our colleagues for the Attorney General would say that tough luck, because your rights were violated um, as a result of unconstitutional legislation rather than discretionary state action, you don't get a remedy. Both- it's Unconstitutional though, I mean, it, it, you, if, you, if you're gonna start with this thought experiment, we need a ground of unconstitutionality. Had it been done through legislation, there may have been a different problem uh, that you would have. So it, the, the fact that the fact situation isn't legislation seems to me to be, to well, be, to be uh, relevant. And I guess coming back to Justice Rowe's question, mm -hmm. the problem is that when you're talking about abuse of power mm -hmm. uh, as a separate ground, you're inevitably going to run into, and bad faith, in dealing with legislation, you're inevitably going to run into parliamentary privilege. I concede if there are aspects that go into constitutionality, it may be a different issue. That's why I asked if they're separate grounds, because I don't know how you get around parliamentary privilege with... Because, because, because from your perspective, you would have to prove the, the bad faith or the abusive process by looking into the legislative process? Well, whose bad faith are we speaking about? Whose, whose abuse of power are we speaking about, mm -hmm. according to you? Because it isn't mentioned in Macken. Ma Macken. Mm -hmm. Who, whose bad faith are we speaking about? Well, I think that that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't be drawing bright lines between the executive and the legislative branches. Because sometimes it won't be clear. Sometimes it's going to be a highly factual exercise. Sometimes it, we, you know, it may be... Well, we're dealing with primary legislation. So whose bad faith are we speaking about? Well, in the Ron Corelli example... No, no, no in a case, this case. In, the, in, in this, this case? case? Let's, let's talk about this case. We're de dealing with bad faith and abuse of power. Primary legislation. Mm -hmm. Whose bad faith or abuse of power are we speaking about? It's Canada's. Get the government of Canada. Canada in developing, uh, in enacting, in applying unconstitutional legislation for improper reasons, even though it knew or should have known that the legislation was unconstitutional. That's the allegation that our client makes. Well, Canada didn't adopt the legislation. It was the Parliament of Canada that adopted the legislation. You may sue the Attorney General of Canada as the representative of the Crown, but it wasn't, it wasn't Canada that adopted some amorphous entity called Canada that adopted the legislation. It was the Parliament of Canada. Well, so, in, in Council for Refugees, we, Justice Cassirer referred to Canada. That's right. And I think that Brazo is another example where courts evaluating a charter claim don't make that distinction. If there's a distinction to be made, it's a highly factual one, but take a look it's, at Brazo. It's, it's, it's a problem of the loose usage of language. People sometimes use the word government when they mean 
the executive. Sometimes people use the word government when they mean parliament. Sometimes people use the name of the country when they mean the institutions of the state. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and you're asking us to say, aha, that because the word Canada was used, it therefore brings into it all of the institutions of the state in an undifferentiated way. I mean, I think that's playing with words. I mean, I don't disagree that there are theoretical and sometimes factual distinctions, but I think what our jurisprudence teaches us is that there are no watertight compartments between the executive and legislative branch. And I also think that you shouldn't need a master's degree in political science to decide if you have a claim for damages when your constitutional rights have been violated. And so I think that we need to be uh, realistic and purposive when we think about what it is that the charter is supposed to be protecting here. The May charter- May I interject here and ask you a question? It's Justice Barton on the screen. Uh, and, and it sort of uh, does come, come back to that. The, uh, the uh, I hesitate to say, but, but, but Canada um, seems to say that as long as there's an operational act and it's not just quite the law not only the law that's unconstitutional, that there may be a different method of, of going forward. But when I take a look at your statement of claim, you're claiming damages, psychological or, or whatever, from, from the actions of the defendant. And as I read your statement of claim, the actions of the defendant include an actual refusal in April um, of uh, a request for a record suspension. So uh, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about an act of a person under an unconstitutional piece of legislation, right? Which could give rise to charter damages um, uh, or is it, uh, are we just abstracting the act out somehow as if it's a free-floating entity that didn't result in an actual decision being taken against your client? Yeah, okay, um, a lot of things to say about that. You know, uh, I think it go, it's helpful to remember the facts in Mackin, right? Mackin is a case where there's mandatory legislation that's enacted. The result of that law is that the position of supernumerary judge is abolished, just ceases to exist, right? This isn't a case where there's some sort of discretionary action. It's similar in our, in our client's case in the sense that when the law is adopted and it's put into effect, the result is he is just not able to get a pardon. He's just not able to get a pardon anymore. His, the, there's no, the, the, the discretionary... It's not just that he's not able. Mm -hmm. He applied and was refused. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and I mean, we wouldn't say that that is necessary in the sense that we don't think that you have to go and try and exercise a right that you know to be futile in order to get a 24 remedy. But we do think that, that his rights were violated as a result of the application of the law. And so, and again, like if the law had not, had not applied to him, if they had not deprived him of his ability to seek a pardon, he wouldn't have a claim under 24 at all for damages because there would be no violation of his right. And I think that that's maybe where I was, where I was going, is that 24-1, in response to Justice Rose's comment earlier, 24-1 doesn't differentiate between what part of the state or how your rights were violated. It gives you a right to seek a remedy whenever your rights were violated or, or infringed. And so we think that that distinction is artificial. Um, I want to talk, uh, I, you know, um, another, let me just circle back here. Questions of evidence. 
know, there might be other kinds of situations where you can demonstrate, um, and I, I want to focus on this because it's kind of a harder question, and I see that the court is, um, has, a, has a feel for this idea of clearly wrong, but um, th this idea of uh, abuse of power, or bad faith, or clearly wrong conduct, the, I don't think that there are, there are distinct little boxes that you have to fit into. I think that they're all different forms of state misconduct. But there are other situations where you can prove that kind of misconduct without looking into the legislative process. And again, we don't think it's improper to look into the legislative process when the state invokes a defense of good governance. But in any case, imagine, um, imagine a situation where on the eve of an election, a law is passed that imposes um, a really demanding voter ID requirement, such that um, a, a significant portion of the population wakes up the next morning and cannot vote. Um, and after the fact, despite the fact that the that, that parliament or the legislature claims that the reason was something like preventing voter fraud, after the fact, we can prove through evidence, scientific evidence, statistical evidence, testimony, a whistleblower, take your pick, we can prove that the result was to deprive, say, that of the people who were disenfranchised, who were deprived of their right to vote, 90% would have supported the, supported the opposition party. There, it would be fully proper for a court to look at the, at the results, at the evidence, regardless of what Parliament said it was doing, and see, see what it did for what it really was. You know, that there was an improper purpose there. And this kind of brings me to a, you know, an, another issue, which is this, this argument from the attorney general, um, this argument from the attorney general that where the state uh, is, is engaged in serious misconduct or enacts uh, tr truly, uh, clearly, clearly wrongful legislation, um, your, your section 52 remedy is enough. Or, or that you might be able to go and get some sort of interlocutory or injunctive relief. Um, I think in a lot of cases that kind of relief will be hollow. It's going to come too late. Uh, or if you take, um, you know, uh, Justice Jamal's example, uh, somebody who's the victim of torture, somebody who's being, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, forcibly sterilized. We don't have to look far in our history. Somebody who's being uh, prohibited from practicing their religious beliefs. We don't have to look far in our history to find these kinds of examples. Um, you don't. Um, you don't say to your, your torturer, like, oh, hold on a second, I'm going to go seek declaratory and injunctive relief. The, the reality is that, that, that sometimes the best you can get from a court is an after-the-fact remedy. Um, I mean, uh, uh, look, oh, what, what did Section 52 do for our client? In, uh, in 2017, uh, the Supreme Court of British Columbia declared this legislation, the legislation that violated our client's rights, unconstitutional. Three months later, with the consent of the federal attorney general in, Shou, uh, in Charon and Rajab, the Ontario Superior Court declared the legislation unconstitutional. In the attorney general's statement of defense in 2018, the attorney general uh, tries to dismiss our client's action even though he's trying to get a 52 declaration in New Brunswick. It takes plaintiffs in Quebec to go to the Quebec Superior Court to try and get a 52 declaration for the attorney general to then consent to bring that issue to the federal court. And in 2020, the federal court declares the legislation unconstitutional. And it's only at that point that the federal government stops applying that law across Canada. So a, a 52 declaration, I mean, we, we talk about how prior declarations of invalidity can be one strong indicator of a situation where there's, there's uh, the clearly wrong threshold might be met. 
Um, but the, it's also an example of how the fact that, uh, you know, the, the declaratory relief from the court under, under Section 52 has its limits too. Um, you know, damages don't, uh, damages don't give somebody their life back who's been in solitary confinement for years. Uh, they don't give somebody their dignity back when they've been victims of uh, discriminatory treatment. Um, but damages are, are what we've got. Um, damages are a piano lessons for your kids. Damages are a down payment on a house. They're going back to school. And I think that this court can sometimes um, lose sight of the fact that in order to, to, to meaningfully um, provide redress for a violation of an individual's constitutional rights, that's, that's one of the tools in the toolkit. Um, I'd like to go back, if I could, to your comment about evidence. It's Justice Morrow. And you said that um, you might not have to go back to the legislative process mm -hmm. unless um, the government alleges good governance. Um, and in that context, it seems to me there may be some kind of a reversal of the onus of proof here. Mm -hmm. Because it would seem to me that Mackin, if Mackin remains good law, uh, you've got the finding of unconstitutionality, a violation. And number two, you have one or more of those three factors, bad faith, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it seems to me, are you trying to place that requirement of bad faith, et cetera, as one that's the onus on the government? Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that in each case, uh, the legislative process may be in, it, it may not be in each case, I apologize, but in many cases it might, it may be the legislative process is engaged and the plaintiff then has the onus of establishing those factors and then how do you go about doing that? If it's not as easy as saying on its face this legislation is unconstitutional and it's obviously clearly wrong, then where does the plaintiff go? So it, 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 do you understand my point? Yeah, it's it's a not a matter of, of um, leaving it to the government to prove good governance. Mm -hmm. The plaintiff has an onus there. Right. I think that um, I, I see your question, Justice Moreau. The way, the way we look at it is this, okay? In a claim for damages under 24.1, ward is the test. The first step is that you have to demonstrate that your charter rights were violated. In this case, that's admitted by the Attorney General at paragraph 65 of their factum. But normally, that's what you have to demonstrate. Step two, you have a, a burden of proof. The plaintiff has a burden of proof to demonstrate that damages are a just and appropriate remedy in the circumstances, pointing to one of the three functional purposes of damages. That's a real evidentiary burden that the plaintiff has. There's not every charter violation that is going to justify an award of damages. Step three. There, the state has the right, if it chooses to, to raise countervailing considerations that include good governance type concerns, as in Mackin, questions of alternative remedies, or other kinds of defenses that it might be able to raise. And there, we say that if the state raises a good governance defense, depending, if it looks like, if their defense is the violation resulted from presumptively constitutional but ultimately unconstitutional law, so we're in a Mackin type situation, then yes, if everybody agrees that the cause of the plaintiff's violation, uh, the, the cause of the violation of the plaintiff's rights was the unconstitutional legislation, then yes, the plaintiff has the burden to show state misconduct sufficient to overcome that good governance defense. What I would say though, is that in practice, as a matter of like practical litigation stuff, 
it's not always obvious what the cause of the violation of your rights is. And so you can have situations where somebody alleges that the violation of their rights arises from discretionary state action, and there, that's just a straightforward application of ward. There, you know, there's no um, reversal or there's no uncertainty around the burden. Um, and there's cases where that issue splits even this court, like Little Sisters is an example of a case where this court disagrees about whether the cause of the violation of a charter right is executive action or the law itself. So we think that that's a factual question. In this case, everybody agrees that it's the law itself, but the court needs to be sensitive to that issue in issuing its reasons. But yeah, we say if everybody agrees that the cause of the, the violation is the law, then your burden is to demonstrate some form of state misconduct that overcomes the state's good governance defense. And we say that if the state raises good governance in its defense, a court should be entitled to go and look down the street and name what it sees and the, evaluate. The state to which you refer is the Dominion of Canada. It was established in the 1867 Constitution Act. That act also constituted the House of Commons and the Senate as the Parliament of Canada and the Queen's Privy Council, I guess. It's the King's Privy Council. It also established similar uh, institutions at the provincial level. And, for example, in Section 32 of the Charter, to which you've made reference en passant, the Charter applies to the Parliament and Government of Canada. The distinction is always maintained. The Parliament and Government of Canada, the legislature and government of each province, quote, unquote. That's the right. state to which you refer does not exist. Just it, it is, it, it, the state exists in the sense that Canada was established and continues to exist, but it operates through its institutions, each of which has an independent constitutional legal basis and privileges which appertain to each of them. Mm -hmm. and, and I come back to it again. You keep saying the state, the state, the state. The state for these purposes, in my view, is, 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 is a broad concept in one sense, and in the other sense, it is nothing more than the Dominion of Canada as established in 1867. It, it can only find, uh, it can only act through the institutions established to give life to the state, uh, and, and those are the executive, the government, or the legislature. Justice Rowe, I agree with you that section 32 is really the guiding light for this analysis. And I agree that it makes a distinction between the parliament and government of Canada and the legislature and government of each province. I would just say that if you read the text of 32 from the very beginning, it goes 32-1, this charter applies and it names all of those entities. And I think that, uh, you know, I see my time is running short. I just, I guess I just wanna, you know, Two things. Um, there's sort of a floodgates argument that's been made by some of the interveners. The floodgates haven't opened. Mackin's been the law for 20 years, okay? Um, but the only people who are affected by the immunity, the, the absolute immunity that the Attorney General um, is seeking, are people who have a serious claim that their constitutional rights have been violated, that that, that violation resulted from legislation. Uh, that the state engaged in some of the worst kinds of misconduct prior to the enactment of the legislation. These are the people who pay the cost of the immunity that the state is seeking. And so the floodgates haven't opened, but if they did, I don't think the court ought to lose too much sleep over it. 
um, the reality is that it's 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 like a it's really a problem of um, you know what what Justice Brennan would call a, a fear of too much justice, and I think you know. At the end of the day, the Attorney General is here asking you to, to overturn 20 years of constitutional jurisprudence, inject massive amounts of uncertainty into the remedial case law on the basis of a, you know, hypothetical concerns that might never arise in the context of this litigation or any other in a factual vacuum on a preliminary question. Uh, the state, the Attorney General, attorneys general in this country have repeatedly sought and failed to expand the limited Mac immunity in Mackin. They tried in Ward to expand it to police officers. They tried in Conseil Scalaire to extend it to policies. They failed up and down the federal courts on this exact issue already in Whaling and Liang, trying to recognize an absolute immunity that the courts have never recognized before. The only group that has absolute immunity, I think in your view, is us. Judges. Maybe at least the nine of you. Um, but yeah, you know what? I, I think that at the end, at the end of the day, um, there's, there's no principled basis to recognize the absolute immunity that's being sought. Uh, we ask you to dismiss the appeal. Thank you. Thank you very much. Olsen Siddig. Good afternoon. For Indigenous people in Canada, many of the extreme examples discussed today, Justices, and in the party's materials are lived experiences. I have three submissions on behalf of the First Nations interveners. First, sometimes charter rights and remedies intersect with the Crown's special relationship with Indigenous people. And the elements of bad faith and motive take unique significance when assessed against the honor of the crown, fiduciary obligations, and diligence toward indigenous people. Those principles focus on the state's motives and good faith obligations. And as Justice Karakatsanis pointed out in Mikisu, that's paragraph 23, the honor, of, the honor of crown applies to the state as a whole, or to quote, cause sovereign, whether the crown acts through legislation or executive conduct. This appeal in our submission is not the suitable place to predecide and shut the door on those elements of the Mackin test. And my submission is addressed both toward absolute immunity and the clearly wrong measure discussed today. We say that either approach would predecide and undermine the charter protections of indigenous people. My second submission is that the proposed frameworks would be a step backwards in Canada's pursuit of reconciliation. Reconciliation is an ongoing process. That is how the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission defines it. And a critical part of that process is restoring trust through meaningful redress. Any absolute or resident state immunity as is, has been discussed by the Attorney General, would disrupt the reconciliation process. The Indian residential schools happened under primary legislation. The question is, what would have happened if the Crown had been armed with an absolute 
or near absolute immunity defense in that case or future cases like that. My third submission is that the proposed frameworks collide with Canada's international human rights obligations. International human rights law recognizes Indigenous peoples' right to effective remedies. Damages and equitable monetary remedies are some of the effective remedies listed under international human rights law. I'll give you one example. Article 11 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples recognizes Indigenous cultural and traditional rights. These rights overlap with many charter protections under, for example, sections 2A and 2B of the Charter. Article 11 of the same instrument, which you have in our condensed book, also recognizes, and I quote from that, that states shall provide redress through effective mechanisms, which may include restitution developed in conjunction with Indigenous peoples. This court's jurisprudence is unequivocal on that point, that charter protections must be interpreted in conformity with Canada's international human rights obligations. The proposed frameworks, both absolute immunity and a narrowing and breadline approach taken on this appeal without indiv Indigenous perspectives being in the record and having been presented to the court both below and here would in our submissions fall short of that standard, at least with respect to Indigenous people. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much, Mr. Chilsey. Uh, Mr. Justice, Chief Justice, Justice of the Court, I'm here today um, with my colleague for Quebec Native Women, the, an organization that has 50 years of experience dealing with legislated discrimination both before and after 1982 against First Nations women and their descendants. This, this issue is real to them. The hypothetical uh, uh, put forward this morning about sterilization is not a hypothetical. We know that that occurred. We know when it was allowed by statute, it was disproportionately inflicted on, on Aboriginal women. The, the, Madam Justice Cote asked an excellent question uh, to my colleague for the response. To why is it relevant what was said in Parliament? And I would like to point out to the court, that's not Mr. Power's question. That's the Attorney General's question. We have spent an enormous amount of time talking about can the Crown be held liable for, in damages for preparing and drafting legislation? Can it be held liable for uh, enacting legislation? Mr. Power didn't ask those questions. The Attorney General asked those questions in Wailing, which the federal court said, we're not ready to answer that. There's no factual record. They came back to it and posed the identical questions in power. This is a motion equivalent to a motion to strike. We're not at the evidentiary phase yet. What has happened here in this case to Mr. Power is much simpler. There was clearly unconstitutional legislation. The Attorney General of Canada admitted that, and Mr. Power lost his job. Now he'd like to be 
compensated for his very concrete loss. The Attorney General said this morning, well, you know, Section 52, that allows for restitution of money paid, contrary to the Constitution. He said, um, she said, excuse me, or uh, um, that 52, well, rather we know, excuse me, from his law, 52 allows for under-inclusive benefits to become payable. So the question is, why should a loss like Mr. Powers not be compensable because we're under 24 instead of 52? Can I because ask? it was done by... Go Sorry, ahead. I just want to ask, so do you see any kind of a per parallel between uh, C-31 and what happened afterwards to Mr. Power? Well, thank you. That's, uh, you've, that's exactly a point I want to take the court to. And I would like the court, or uh, rather I would urge the court to look at the trial judgment in Deschino, um in the Quebec court, uh, Superior Court in 2015, which was a charter judgment that the Attorney General of Canada did not appeal. Madam Justice Mass stated clearly that the, um, the amendments to the Indian Act that Parliament enacted after the Macabre judgment, which the Attorney General also did not appeal, did not go far enough. She actually refers to Parliament doing the bare minimum and its failure to perform its legislative duty to bring the statute fully into conformity with the Charter. That is what happens. And that, if I can loop back, is why I think, yes, there are independent criteria in Mackin, and there should be. Um, there's not just bad faith, which I agree brings in the difficult question of intention. There's negligence. There's willful blindness. I would submit that what Madam Justice Mass notes in Deschanel is a kind of willful blindness or a negligence. Madam Justice uh, uh, Karakatanis mentioned recklessness this morning. And if I could also draw your attention to the BC Teachers Federation uh, judgment in the Court of Appeal that this court upheld, uh, where Justice Donald talked about egregious and unconstitutional conduct. That is what occurs, and that is what um, what uh, uh, plaintiffs are stuck with. And I think, if, if I may, I think we've turned the telescope around for some reason. Um, Mr. Nisro said, well, what becomes a parliamentary privilege? Well, it'll still be an obstacle. Yeah, it'll be a problem sometimes. No, you can't subpoena members of parliament. Um, but why can't we look at what parliament itself said about what the purpose of its legislation or its not legislating was. Like as uh, some of uh, members of the court said this morning, we do for constitutional purpose uh, in, other, in other files. And since my time is almost up, I'll just mention there are serious issues from this principle beyond the charter. How is this going to apply to division of powers? How is it going to apply to section 35 inoperability? How is it going to apply to regulations? The Attorney General has not told us, and it's, those are serious concerns. Subject to the questions of this court, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Neela Brown. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. I'm going to start today by addressing the appellant's submission from earlier that the availability of injunctions against the application of legislation renders damages inappropriate under Mackinac Ward. The appellant's reference to injunctions makes an assumption uh, that I say is problematic, and that assumption is that no harm will flow to individuals from the time the law is passed to when the injunction is ultimately ordered. That assumption is particularly problematic when you consider that what we're talking about here generally will be vulnerable people 
facing the harmful consequences of a law that they believe to be unconstitutional. They'll need to take time to find a lawyer, figure out how to pay for that lawyer, and quickly bring a complicated application for an injunction. Relying on the availability of injunctions to preclude damages in all cases is to foreclose one responsive remedy on the basis of an alternative that might not even address some of the harms in question and may often be illusory from an access to justice perspective. In my remaining time, I want to address the scope of the clearly wrong category set out in Mackin that this court has been uh, talking quite a bit about today. The David Asper Center submits that it would be inconsistent with Section 24.1 to find that in every single possible case, only some prescribed level of fault, such as willful noncompliance with constitutional law, could provide a basis for damages under the clearly wrong standard in Mackin. And I want to make a, a high-level comment about this first. A troubling problem with an approach based entirely on fault or intention is that the focus of the inquiry inevitably will become why the legislature introduced the law as opposed to the actual real-world impacts on rights holders. And in our view, this is an odd approach to a remedial provision. And at a minimum, I would suggest that what is clearly wrong in a given case should be informed by the nature of the consequences borne by rights holders due to the operation of the unconstitutional law in question. And flowing from this, I want to address something that uh, Justice Cassiera has raised. Uh, I understand that it, it might be that what I've said is not already contemplated in Mackin, and if that's the case, then I submit that the court's reference to negligence and unreasonableness in paragraphs 82 and 83 of Mackin at the very least leave open the possibility that what makes the enactment of a law clearly wrong can be assessed with reference to objective criteria. And these objective criteria could include things like the nature of the harms caused, which I've already mentioned, but could also include uh, an example drawn from Hislop, which is the issue of whether or not the law was in flux at the time that the law in question was enacted. Um, and it could also include uh, considerations that are raised in the recent safe third country decision and in Henry being the possibility of being able to infer knowledge on the basis of various contextual factors. So ultimately what is required is a pr pr proportionate approach to section 24.1 and that's what we're asking this court to maintain. We address this in detail in our fact and beginning at paragraph 13. Uh, but what I really wanna focus on now is this idea that uh, we need to maintain this balance because it's impossible to conclude at this juncture that there could never be a situation where rights holders ought to have access to damages when they suffer losses under an unconstitutional law that was enacted without improper intent or knowledge on the part of the legislature. We're just not in this, that position in this case. Uh, we've heard several examples today of, uh, of, of why that might be, so I won't dwell on those examples. So I'll just end by briefly commenting on two other issues that came up um, mostly in the appellant submissions and some of the interveners from this morning. First, I'll just briefly comment on the appellant's request this court clarify Mackin in a way that restricts charter relief for rights holders who suffer losses. Ultimately, it's important to keep in mind that the outcome of what the appellant is asking for is to make claims as hard as possible for vulnerable people. And if I understand the appellant's submissions uh, correctly, particularly in response to some questions from the Chief Justice, 
The basis for making that sweeping argument is information drawn from other as yet undecided cases that are not before the court today. In that case, in my view, it seems doubly inappropriate to accept the appellant's invitation in the present case. And lastly, I'll just add that uh, some of the interveners this morning mentioned that Mackin ought to be restricted because there are no safeguards that operate in favor of the state, or, or to be more accurate, perhaps in favor of the legislature's interest and the government's interests. My response to that is that the third step of Ward provides that safeguard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Andrew Loken. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. The short form of my submission is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The qualified immunity approach set out in Macon and Ward has been in place for more than 20 years. None of the institutional concerns raised by Canada and the provinces have come to pass. So let me address some questions from the bench. Uh, Justice Jamal, to your point that we only need to consider output cases where the legislation itself is clearly wrong. With respect, there is a role for input cases as well where a government has act, enacted a law for an improper purpose or with knowledge that they didn't have the power to do so. Upper Churchill Water Rights is a case where this court found a colorable purpose in the division of powers context, that the law was not what it purported to be. This is close to a lack of good faith or an abuse of power. And the extrinsic evidence that the court examined included a pamphlet put out by the government before it introduced the legislation. And this court actually uh, preferred to rely on the pamphlet that on speeches in the, in the legislature, not because of any issue of privilege, but because the speeches were said to be weak evidence of what the government's true purpose was. But what the case shows is, is that uh, what can and cannot be relied upon is in the last analysis, a case by case analysis. Likewise, laws that have an unlawful purpose under the charter, such as enforcing religious conformity after Big M, that is a case uh, uh, where the government advancing such legislation may not be acting in good faith. The court would be entitled to look at evidence of the government's true purpose. There may be disputes about what evidence is admissible, but again, this is case by case. Neither parliamentary privilege nor separation of powers have ever prevented the courts from looking at the legislative record to determine the legislature's true purpose or intent. In Vreen, this court looked at the record to find that the omission of sexual orientation from human rights legislation was deliberate and not accidental, a finding of intent that could have significance under the charter. As Oliver Wendell Holmes said, even a dog knows the difference between being stumbled over and kicked. Justice Karakatsanis, you asked whether all laws need to be enforced and therefore need we only look at conduct under a law. Some laws are self-executing. For example, the marrying out rule under the pre-1985 Indian Act caused indigenous women to lose their status, but also their children would not be eligible or entitled to status. In light of the law, there would have been no point in applying to be registered, so there is no enforcement action. Uh, you have to take account of those kinds of cases as well. Also, how can you sue an official for their conduct in simply following the law? If the charter problem is with the law itself, there must be the possibility of damages arising from enactment of the law in appropriate cases. Again, the Macon Ward framework provides for balancing of interests on a case-by-case -case basis. This court has always ensured that charter jurisprudence develops incrementally. We submit there is wisdom in this approach. None of us knows what the future holds. We now have 41 years of experience under the charter, but new challenges arise all the time. 
from our pre-charter experience, we know that legislatures can be egregiously wrong and cause great harm. And from the experience of other countries as well as our own, we know that majoritarian impulses can lead legislatures to resist changes to the legal landscape. For example, some state legislatures in the US were slow to embrace the clearer findings of the US Supreme Court that racial segregation infringes the 14th Amendment. Legislative intransigence in the face of legal rulings is not unknown and damages may be the most appropriate response. Section 24 is drafted in such broad terms precisely because the framers could not anticipate all the situations that may arise or what remedies may be apt for any given situation. In the CCLA's respectful submission, damages for unconstitutional legislation under make an award have their place and should not be ruled out. Just want to make a final point on uh, on the uh, issue of uh, parliamentary sovereignty, um, sovereignty or, or supremacy and uh, commend to the court the Vreen case again at paragraphs 131 to 135. Uh, not so long ago, some very similar arguments were made before the court that declarations of invalidity were undemocratic because they overcame the will of the elected branches uh, and that that uh, posed a question to the legitimacy of the court. And the court's answer was to say simply, well, we got this power in the first place from the legislatures, from the parliament and the legislatures that enacted the charter in 1982. Uh, here, we're talking about Section 24, but the same principles apply. It was drafted in broad terms deliberately to give this court and other courts flexibility to address problems as they arise. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. George Avram. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, I do have a condensed book that I may uh, refer to, but uh, in short, our position is that the general principles in Mackin are the correct ones. That being said, our position is also that the test, the framework should be refined to deal with the exact circumstances that we are faced with. First, the clearly wrong standard is too loose a standard to balance the interests of parliament, good governance, and democratic processes. In Ward and specifically at paragraph 43 of Ward, you see the Chief Justice referring to clear disregard of a claimant's charter rights. And in our submission, that is the right test. There's a difference between clearly wrong and a clear disregard of a charter right. You could be convinced you are right, yet still be clearly wrong. The clearly wrong standard also allowed at least one uh, decision out of the Ontario Court of Appeal to use a negligence standard. And that in our submission is not the right test for charter damages. When you are looking at a clearly wrong standard, we su submit that you should look at intentions, recklessness, willful blindness, improper purpose, bad faith, an abuse of power. To Justice Jamal's point, when you're looking at a clear disregard of a charter claimant's right, all of those can be factors one looks at to determine if there was a clear disregard of a claimant's rights. Abuse of power and bad faith cannot be separated from the clear disregard 
of the charter claimant's rights. We also differ with the various attorneys general who submitted that only a precedent of this court would result in a clear disregard of a charter claimant's rights. We have examples uh, and hypotheticals that this members of this court put to the respondent, waterboarding, sterilization, administrative segregation. We don't need this court to make a decision to have a binding precedent for there to be a clear disregard of a charter claimant's rights. And, and what evidence can you use? And this is obviously an issue this court needs to grapple with. Publicly available documents, hazards, standing committee debates, expert evidence that has been put before the standing committees are publicly available and this court uses that as evidence all the time. Those inputs, if I may, are used to determine or can help determine the output, whether there was a clear disregard for a charter claimant's rights. You do not need to go and subpoena the Speaker of the House in our submission, what should be relied on and what could be relied on is what this court looks at when it deals with several cases. And we've listed some of them in paragraphs 14 to 18 of our fact. There's no need to throw Mac in away or to throw Ward away. We do believe that there needs to be a refinement to appropriately balance both sets of interests. And we do believe keeping the inputs to those that are publicly available does not disturb parliamentary privilege, does not infringe on the separation of powers, and does nothing other than what this court is always doing when it's assessing charter claims and section one analyses in particular. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Connor Bildfell. Chief Justice, Justices, the John Howard Society of Canada makes three main submissions. First, charter infringing laws can and do have serious and long-lasting consequences for people in prison across Canada. And in many cases, the only meaningful remedy is charter damages. Second, for people in prison, the theoretical divide between law-making functions and law-administering functions doesn't change the impact that charter infringements have on the real lives of people. Whether it's a charter infringing solitary confinement law or charter infringing conduct by a prison guard, the effect on the individual is the same. And third, people in prison face unique challenges and circumstances that make them uniquely vulnerable to charter infringements. It is no coincidence that many of the examples of charter infringing laws and actions that have been raised today involve people in prison. I respectfully ask this court to take their perspectives and circumstance, circumstances into account in resolving this appeal. Starting with my first submission, charter infringing laws can have serious and long-lasting consequences for people in prison. For example, charter infringing laws that lead to incarceration or prevent access to parole can result not only in a loss of liberty, 
but also in a loss of income or income earning capacity that can have de devastating long-term effects. Indeed, the economic consequences of being denied the ability to live and work in the community or to leave a prior offense in the past can follow someone for their entire life. In many cases, charter damages may be the only remedy that would meaningfully compensate the individual for the financial and other losses they have suffered as a result. As the Chief Justice pointed out, striking down a law can only go so far. It can prevent the law from applying going forward, but it cannot repair the very real harms and consequences to the individual. In light of the serious and long-lasting nature of these consequences, Section 24 of the Charter should be interpreted in a way that maintains an appropriate scope for charter damages. Moving to my second submission, for people in prison, the theoretical divide between law-making functions and law-administering functions doesn't change the impacts the charter infringements have on their lives. A number of submissions before the court today seek to draw a distinction between law-making and law-administering and to establish that the two are fundamentally different and must be treated differently. But for people in prison whose charter rights have been violated, the two aren't so different at all. In fact, the practical impact on their lives is the same. Ignoring this practical reality would have real consequences for people in prison across Canada. To use an example that both Justices Jamal and Justice Cote uh, raised earlier today, on the Attorney General of Canada's theory, people who have been held in solitary confinement for extended periods could obtain charter damages if their confinement flowed from the clearly wrong administration of a law, but not if their confinement flowed from the clearly wrong enactment of a law. That can't be right. To people in prison who have suffered a breach of their charter rights, it makes no difference whether those rights were violated by law administrators or lawmakers. The result is the same. To ensure people in prison can obtain a just and appropriate remedy in either scenario, the court should maintain an appropriate scope for charter damages, not immunize lawmaking from charter damages altogether. Moving to my third and final submission, people in prison across Canada face unique challenges and circumstances that the court should take into account in resolving this appeal. People in prison have suffered and continue to suffer charter violations as a result of laws that the government knew or ought to have known violated the charter. For example, the government's new solitary confinement laws plainly perpetuate charter violations that the courts of British Columbia and Ontario have identified in earlier decisions. The Attorney General of Canada maintains the Parliament would not, in the charter era, pass clearly unconstitutional solitary confinement laws. But I say that is precisely what has already happened. We don't need to resort to hypothetical examples of clearly wrong laws. We have one right here in front of us. And this is just one illustration of how people in prison are uniquely vulnerable to charter violations flowing from unconstitutional laws. Canadian law should ensure people in prison can seek charter damages for charter infringing laws where appropriate. Section 24's promise of an appropriate and just remedy demands nothing less. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Brody Noga. Apologies, I appear to have been on mute for a second there. Uh, there are 
two issues that appear to be live in this appeal right now. And, and the first is a question of, of principle, and that's whether there should be an absolute immunity to charter damages resulting from har for harm resulting from charter infringing legislation, no matter how egregious the underlying conduct. Uh, the, the second question is a more practical question, which I think the court is, is struggling with, and it, which is, if there isn't an absolute immunity, how do you define the qualified immunity that, that is in place? Because no one here is suggesting that there's no, no level of immunity for uh, harm resulting from charter infringing legislation. Uh, on the first question of whether there should be an absolute immunity uh, at all, the BCCLA's submission is that absolute immunities ought to have died in 1952 with this court's uh, decision in Roncarelli and Duplessis. And that's because the conception of the rule of, uh, of law that this identified in that case is based on the fundamental principle that, that government and its representatives must exercise public power in good faith and with a public purpose. And that, that core idea has since infused the whole of this court's jurisprudence on government or state liability from, from Wellbridge to Nels to Guimont and Mackin. It's a, it's a reoccurring theme. Uh, and in our submission, that principle rings true no matter what form the public power takes, whether it's executive or, or legislative. And that principle is the principle of public law that Justice Gontier invokes in his decision, and particularly at paragraph 79 uh, of his reasons. And it's because of this that the immunity that has grown out of Mackin is a good governance immunity, because the immunity is supposed to facilitate the action of the state in carrying out and exercising public power for a public purpose. And that rationale falls yeah, that, away. That is a very, when it's a very, very interesting uh, principle to be drawn from Roncarelli and Duplessis. Uh, I thought myself, but perhaps mine is an impoverished understanding of it that it was simply that once a, a, an authority is delegated, it can only be used for the purposes for which it is delegated and not for an ulterior purpose. You've expanded this to, to somehow a concept that all authority exercised by any of the institutions of the state must be exercised somehow in the public interest and that we're, the judges are sort of floating over this to make sure everything is done the right way. Well, thank you, Justice Rowe. I, I, my answer is that that is the principle that Justice Gonti articulated in, in paragraph 79. And, and my argument is that can be sourced to the conception of the rule of law in Ron Corelli. But that is in a specifically, as Justice Gonti said, when uh, the government and its representatives are required to exercise their powers in good faith and to respect the established and indisputable laws that define the constitutional rights of individuals. And so we say that's the articulation of the principle, and we say that it finds its root uh, in Roncarelli. Now, the, the second point is the practical question, and, and that is whether the, the Mackin standard of clearly wrong and in, in bad faith or, or an abuse of power, uh, how it can be operationalized in terms of legislation. And, and, and in the brief time that remains, I, I just want to address, uh, address each 
each arm uh, of the Mackin principle. Um, on the point of the clearly wrong standard, uh, I think it's even many of the attorney generals here today have, have agreed that the legislation can be clearly wrong. Uh, there, but we would say that contrary to the, the position of the attorney general for British Columbia uh, and others, that there doesn't need to be a prior precedent of this court. I mean, as a basic principle, uh, you can have unprecedentedly wrong legislation. Um, and very briefly on, on the second part, on bad faith and an abuse of power, we say that, that the, input is, the input part of legislation is still relevant and that where there is improper purpose or improper motives for legislation, which may cause it to fail the pressing and substantial objective, that falls under more readily bad faith or an abuse of power than it does clearly wrong. Thank you. Those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Reply. Thank you, Chief Justice Wagner. Uh, I have three brief points in reply. The first relates to the liability threshold if this court rejects an absolute immunity and uh, arises from the various submissions made about the contours of the clearly wrong standard. If this court articulates a revised limited immunity threshold, it needs to be a clear and workable standard. And it must not leave wiggle room such that it could be defeated through artful pleadings. Regarding a clearly wrong standard, unless it is limited to an objective standard, to the situation of Parliament enacting a law in the face of directly contrary and binding jurisprudence, the standard would not avoid a breach of parliamentary privilege and sovereignty because otherwise the question becomes clearly wrong in whose views. In enacting the legislation, the democratically elected parliament made a legislative policy choice that it obviously did not consider to be clearly wrong. While this may leave something on the table, that is mandated by reconciling paragraph 24.1 with parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary privilege and the separation of powers. The second point relates to the respondent's submission regarding the absence of floodgates since Mackin. And I think the statement made by this court the next year in Doucette Boudreaux at paragraph 43, that a remedy under section 24.1 is available where there is some government action beyond the enactment of an unconstitutional statute or provision, likely stemmed that tide. And by this, when I say government, I use it to mean the executive. However, contrary to the respondent's submissions, this court should be concerned about the floodgates. Recognizing the availability of damages in a clear way, in this case, would have a chilling effect on Parliament. This links Justice Martin's question, asking, doesn't the legislature have the responsibility to respect the Charter? Well, of course the answer is yes. But for the legislature to take that responsibility seriously and to comply with the Charter in the legislation they enact, they need to be free to call witnesses to committee. And they need to be free to hear dissenting voices. The specter of damages would militate against Parliament doing so. And I'm going to take John Howard's uh, Society's example to demonstrate this. 
The submissions made by John Howard Society uh, point to Parliament's enactment of Bill C-83, an act to amend the Corrections and Conditional Release Act and another act, which Parliament did in response to decisions of the courts of British Columbia and Ontario striking down provisions authoring, authorizing administrative segregation. The Charter Statement accompanying the bill explains how the proposed legislative deficiencies in previous legislation, uh, how it addresses those uh, constitutional deficiencies. Despite this, John Howard alleges that there are constitutional deficiencies in the legislation and, in effect, argues that damages should be available because Parliament was warned of these deficiencies by leading prison law experts during committee study of the legislation. If this court confirms that charter damages may be available for Parliament's enactment of primary legislation, consider whether Parliament would hesitate to have those dissenting voices come and expound upon the risks and the potential charter deficiencies in the legislation. This is clearly going to be a limit on parliamentary sovereignty and on their ability to uh, function in their deliberative uh, role. And the third point uh, is a response to three cases relied on by the respondent and others. First of all, regarding the respondent's reliance on BC Teachers Federation, noting that pre-legislative state conduct may be directly relevant to determining whether legislation uh, passed, passing the terms of work conditions breached Section 2D, BC Teachers Federation does not support the respondent's position. It was looking at the role of the executive in negotiations prior to the legislature also ultimately enacting the terms and conditions of work. But because there's a need for collective bargaining, it's the actions of the executive qua executive in that bargaining that was relevant. On the question of damages, BC Teachers Federation case supports Canada's position. Justice MacDonald explicitly re rejected the trial judge's award of damages, finding that it was inappropriate because the dialogic principle states that governments must be allowed to attempt to revise unconstitutional legislation without the threat of further liability. Um, I, one more uh, point, and that is with respect to Brazo and the response reliance on paragraph 101 of that decision. The paragraph immediately before paragraph 100 makes it clear that the court was talking about the administrative segregation policies. In other words, executive action. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank counsel for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.